You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 441. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 2nd of September. Can you believe it's already September 2020? In today's episode, a Boeing 767's landing gear collapses while landing in Bucharest. Ukrainian Air Force jets practice landing on a roadway, but one almost hits cars and people. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, RAF Form 414, Volume 7. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 441 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, a Emmy Award-winning radio and TV broadcaster based in New York City at 1010 Winds, number one all-news station in the nation. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, an airline pilot for a major legacy carrier based in Atlanta, GA, and also here... Helping me with all this from her lakeside studio in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated skydive pilot, Dr. Steph. Welcome to the pod. Hello. Am I doing something wrong? Helps if I unmute myself, which I did. <laughs> I pushed the button and didn't actually click. But anyway, I said hi. Glad to be here. Happy to be helpful, maybe, or not helpful, as the case may be. <laughs> yeah, not doing I have cool to so far. think twice about that. And <laughs> also joining us from across the pond in his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. And uh, hi, Steph. Try shouting louder next time. <laughs> I think I can get through the mute that way. That'll, that'll definitely <laughs> yeah. work. Great to be back on the show. And uh, oh, I'm looking forward to getting in bed before midnight tonight. That'll be fun. Very nice. No, the missus isn't. But, uh, that's another thing altogether, isn't it? Life is like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to our first segment, the news. Stand by for news. Okay, let's start with this. Uh, An interesting thing happened in Ukraine. The Ukrainian Air Force exercise almost ends in disaster. On August 27th, the Ukrainian Air Force fighter jets uh, practiced for rough landings on improvised runways as 
Part of trials to use roads for emergency landings and to de demonstrate the capability to swiftly assemble air power to counter any threat. Two Sukhoi Su-27 heavy fighter jets of the Ukrainian Air Force landed on the main road connecting the capital, Kiev, with CHOP on Thursday. In the footage below, published by numerous witnesses on social media, you can see Su-27s performing their drills on what is known as Highway M-06, a Ukrainian international highway connecting Kiev to the Hungarian border near Chop. I don't know. Chop? Shall Chop? we see that f footage? Jeff? Yeah, why don't we show that footage, Liz? There was a roadside sign that uh, got hit and almost sucked up by the uh, number one left engine intake. And it kind of neatly wrapped itself around the edge or exterior of that inlet on the left side and luckily didn't get sucked in to the um, engine intake. Very lucky. That could have been extremely embarrassing. Uh, had he lost his engine at that moment, uh, things might not have got quite as planned. Nope. Uh, it says, uh, one of the fighter jets miscalculated the landing point and almost landed on the head of people and police cars and also knocked down a road sign, uh, road sign during landing, which le could lead to a fatal crash. I'm going to do this. I'm going to um, share this photo. It has some close-up um, views of the sign getting wrapped around the intake. And uh, let me see here. Let me get back to... If anyone can work out what that sign says, I'd be most interested in that. Oh, I mean, there might be some irony or something. I, I was hoping, or, yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to share it. So you should, I mean, I don't know if they're made of iron, Jeff, and they might be tin, tinnery. Yeah. Is that showing up? Uh, okay. No, it needs to be a bit There's bigger. one that's a bigger picture, like a zoom yeah. down, like right well, on the... Uh, okay, that's from a distance, and that's at 100%. I can't do anything about mm -hmm. that. But um, so you can sort of see the, you know, the red circle showing where the sign is on the intake. But here... Here you can clearly see. Oh yeah, <laughs> the uh, the damage to the uh, left intake. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't that, tell right. what it says, but looks like maybe a, a J. I don't know. A J. Uh, yes. J. It's backwards. No. I was hoping it would say "danger low flying airplanes." <laughs> <laughs> well, there's too much paint like scraped off of the rest of it to know. <laughs> yeah. It was quite an impact. <laughs> I don't think these yeah. signs are really designed to withstand this kind of collision. But uh, yeah, uh, be they're not. Yeah, road signs are not designed to withstand any type of collision. Having seen some knocked over recently, looks like this airplane's going to need some body work done. Uh, just a little right there, a little bit, above yeah. where the sign is. Yeah, actually, this this will probably be fixed with speed tape without too many problems. Speed tape and bondo. That's yeah, all you there need. you go. All right. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, that was uh, kind of a close call there, but uh, luckily nobody got hurt. So is this yeah. a usual thing for Air Force training, like to land on roads as part of rough Not on landing? purpose. Uh, um, okay. Yeah, we don't want to Well, our Air Force used to do a fair amount of it. The, the Harrier boys were adept at uh, landing on more or less anything, including, uh, you know, fields and the like. 
Um, the Jaguar boys uh, used to practice uh, landing on the autobahns in Germany. Uh, it was one of the features of the aircraft. It was supposed to be uh, eight capable of rough field landings. So, yeah, a few of them did. There's another picture here I'm looking at, too. There's people just, like, standing on the road in close proximity to this jet coming into. Yeah, I do think you're supposed to land that early. I think his landing. Yeah, uh, that, that was the miscalculation. Target. Yeah, yeah I think that was okay. the miscalculation. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was supposed to land beyond all that stuff, including the time. The sign. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So, yeah. I have seen uh, different um, air forces of different countries practicing this sort of thing. I think, was it the, the Swedish? Air Force or the Swiss, I don't know. They, I, they kind of blocked off an area somewhere where they, and they do this like every year, they practice using stretches of road to land on. Well, the, the Norwegians and I, I assume the Swedes used to have, um, you know, mountains where they had hidden aircraft shelters mm -hmm. and they could taxi out uh, and the taxiways looked just like ordinary roads, uh, the airfields were incredibly well uh, camouflaged. So, uh, you know, we're talking about in Cold War time. So it was actually sometimes very hard to find your way home because everything looked blended in with the countryside. You know, the runways were painted mm -hmm. and the hangars were grassed and the uh, hardened aircraft shelters, I should say. So yeah, they would. They used to do that, and uh, literally, uh, their aircraft would taxi into a hangar that was part of a mountain. Wow, like the mm. Batcave. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. Very cool. Um, I hall boxes says, "Aren't all Su twenty sevens made out of recycled traffic sign?" <laughs> Could be. I don't know. It was just. It was just seeking its home. That's all. All right. That's enough of that. Three people killed in plane crash at Coulter Field in Bryan, Texas. This comes from TheEagle.com. Um, not a lot of information about this, uh, just that three people were killed and one was injured in an airplane crash at Coulter Field uh, Airport, Bryan, Texas, before 2.30 p.m. Sunday afternoon. The FAA issued a press release at 3.30 p.m. indicating the plane was a single-engine Piper PA-24 with four people aboard. Um, Let's see. In addition to the three fatalities, a fourth individual suffered critical injuries and was taken to a hospital via helicopter. Um, and that's all really that particular news item says. We also see something in the aviation safety dot net um, piece or uh, article regarding this with Piper PA 24-250 Comanche. And uh, said that the aircraft imp impacted airport terrain came to a rest inverted during a landing attempt at Coulter Field. The airplane was destroyed and three out of the four people. Okay, we know that. The last remaining occupant survived with critical injuries. So it looks like it was during a landing attempt that this hmm. occurred. So, Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, inverted. There's certainly parts of the aircraft that are inverted and some that appear to be maybe still upright, which is not good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it looks like. The whole airplane has been compressed into about a five-foot square. Yeah, it looks yeah. absolutely tragic. Yeah, hmm. not good. Okay, well, hopefully we'll learn about a little bit more about what happened there. Um, maybe if you're a listener in that area of Texas, you might be able to keep your finger on the pulse and let us know if you uh, hear anything about what exactly happened there. 
an Emirates Airbus A380-800 registration Alpha 6 Echo Echo Mic performing flight 449 from Auckland, New Zealand to Dubai, United Arab, Arab Emirates with 378 passengers, 29 crew, was en route at flight level 400, about 140 nautical miles east of Chennai, India, at around 2154 Zulu, when the aircraft encountered turbulence. Okay, This happened when? July 10th of last year. 2019. Um, looks like the final report was released by the United Arab Emirates GCAA. Uh, the probable causes of the accident were, let's see, the flight was planned. Uh, let's see, the air accident investigation sector determines that the cause of the ac- accident was the severe turbulence acceleration forces and clear air imposed on the aircraft as it flew in an area affected by convective activity resulting in several unsecured passengers and cabin crew members force members forcefully impacting cabin furnishings contributory contributory factors to the accident the flight was planned north of an area with forecasted convective activity containing embedded cumulonimbus clouds the flight crew did not request updated weather information from air traffic control or pilot reports as the aircraft approached the area affected by the convective activity over the bay of bengal or the bay of bengal bengal i don't know Uh, Choose one of those. The wet turbulence areas displayed in magenta on the navigation display did not prompt the flight crew to use the weather uh, radar best capabilities by using WXR manual mode, enabling a more accurate assessment of the distance margin with the area of greatest threat. After turning the seatbelt light on, the flight crew did not communicate with the cabin manager to secure the passenger cabins before the onset of the turbulence. Not good. The cabin manager and other on-duty cabin crew members were not aware that the fastened seatbelt sign had been switched on in spite of the fastened seatbelt sign flashing for five seconds and and fastened seatbelt chime sounding. Uh, The GCAA report of the aircraft was flown by a captain and a first officer, augmented by another captain and first officer. About one hour prior to the turbulence encounter, the augmenting crew took over during the handoff. The main crew advised there was weather activity ahead with other aircraft deviating around weather. Ding, 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 ding. That should have been a little clue. Um, for the, But I guess they just ignored that information from the uh, primary crew. During the flight, the weather radar, WXR and TURB functions, turbulence functions were in auto mode and the WX push button was selected on the electronic Flight Instrument System Control Panel, EFIS CP, which enabled the display of weather information on their nav displays. Let's see. Uh, at 2148, so it's night. Um, as a precaution with the aircraft about 40 nautical mi- miles away from the location of the turbulence encounter, the captain decided to turn on the seatbelt sign. So that's about five minutes before they hit the area. There was no call from the captain to the cabin manager. Okay, we talked about that. The seatbelt line. Uh, our airline didn't do that. So, I, obviously, that's an airline-specific thing. What's that? And make a call as well as turning the seatbelt signs on. For us, it was just sufficient to turn the belts on. Okay. Uh, the cabin crew didn't get a, a telephone call as well. So so what would they do if the, pass- the uh, seatbelt light gets turned on? Are they going to continue their service, or are they going to also take their seats, or...? Uh, it depends uh, on the severity. So uh, if I anticipated that it was going to interrupt the service, then I would call the FSM and say, 
you probably might want to sit everyone down and secure the cabin, but that was pretty rare, very rare that you would expect to have to do that. Okay. Well, in this case, they didn't, and they didn't alter their course at all. They continued the oh. track. Interesting. What? Did somebody say something? Hmm? <laughs> I said interesting. No, I said, I, oh. Okay. There we go. I'm sorry. I wasn't sure where that came from. <laughs> Just random voices in Jeff's head. Oh. That's right. Other people being out here doing the show with him. Just expressing um, my surprise. That's all. Yeah. Was it so, Dr. Bob that used to have that problem? I think so. In the Muppets. I thought maybe yes. it was it was uh, Liz trying to give me some kind of information, but it wasn't her. It was Steph. Not me. Um, anyway, uh, basically, they... Well, there's a little bit more information here. They talked about they talked about maybe going around it. They would have had to go maybe 80 nautical miles out of the way. Not a lot, especially on a long flight like this. Um, and uh, they they decided, yeah, it's okay. It's going to be okay. It looks like we're going to be on the top of it. Um, let's see. During the interview with the crew, the captain stated that the nav display about uh, stated that on the nav display about 80 nautical miles away, there was a couple of red spots displayed on the nav display, but they were well left and right of the track. The red spots disappeared as the aircraft got closer. The flight crew, of course, you know that beam. You know, it depends on how the the angle of the beam is set. Uh, if it's an auto mode, I'm not sure what it does on a 380. The flight crew stated that they adjusted the weather radar range on the EFIS, um control panel between 160 nautical miles for the captain and 80 for the co-pilot. The weather radar gain control located on the SURV panel was set at 85% for the captain and 50% for the co-pilot. Captain stated that the Airbus A380 aircraft weather radar can determine what weather is relevant and what is not. So it sounds like it's a, kind of a smart radar, which is referred to as, uh, as on path and off path. He further explained that as a decision to deviate is normally taken before the aircraft gets within 40 nautical miles of the weather. Uh, they turn, they dimmed the cockpit lighting to observe the lightning activity in the area, which, in, which occurred approximately every minute to 30 seconds because it was night the, during the lightning, they were able to see the tops of the weather and the weather below the aircraft. However, as the tracking of the aircraft was through a clear area with few clouds, they decided to continue with the planned flight route because the weather radar display on the nav display was showing the weather as off path. Uh, let's see. So it goes into much more detail. Um, uh, when they hit the area of clear air turbulence, obviously due to the uh, convective activity, the flight crew described the turbulence happened very quickly and they were jostled up and down. And even with their seatbelts on for the first minute, they had to brace themselves. And this is an A380. <laughs> Yeah, it's a big airplane to be thrown mm -hmm. around, to be jostled around. Because the airspeed had suddenly started to increase towards the maximum maximum operating Mach, MMO, speed limit of 0.89, the co-pilot tried to maintain the airspeed by immediately moving the speed brake lever to deploy the wing spoilers and reducing the Mach target number from 0.84 to 0.72 Mach. The flight crew said that they did not observe any speed exceedance. During the turbulence, the autopilot remained engaged, and there was no excessive altitude loss. Anyway, then they got the call from the uh, cabin manager saying that there were, uh, uh, let's see, oh, at the time of the turbulence, there was there were 15 cabin crew on duty, including the cabin manager. Of these, three were in first class, four in business class, seven in economy class, and one seated in the cockpit. Nine cabin crew were on their scheduled rest in the crew rest compartment located in the aft cabin. Um, let's see. 
So there were several, basically he called and said that there were several of the cabin crew injured as well as several passengers injured. And uh, I think they continued on to destination. Uh, It's a description they might have just eased over that, Jeff. Four cabin crew assigned a business class reported to the cabin manager that they were in the aft galley at the time and had suffered injuries when they flew up and impacted the ceiling. Ouch. So that's pretty severe turbulence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It, it was almost seems to me maybe, and they, they seem to be indicating maybe that the um, decision-making and the attitude of the captain who was in charge at the time was a little bit cavalier. Like it's not a big deal. I mean, he's thinking we're in a big giant airplane. What's that going to do to us? I mean, it seems implied they did talk about how other aircraft were deviating for this weather mm-hmm. and reported some significant turbulence. Um, they may not but, have been at the same altitude. Exactly. Though. There's a lot of variables here that I don't know that we yeah, know. These guys are up at 40 grand. So, yeah. you know, the, we understand that uh, big clouds can, in the tropics, get up that high and even higher. Um, and that you don't, you know, f- within 5,000 feet at the top of a cloud, you can still, uh, going over the top, you can still get turbulence. But, um, you know, uh, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm reading his, his words here, and he's got a very sophisticated radar. Sadly, I'm not familiar with the particular settings on this uh, radar, but if it's anything like the ones we had on our uh, 330s, which are an interleaved uh, system so they do multiple level scans they're also linked with terrain over the earth so that they um, can automatically adjust their angle to give you the absolute primary uh, the best indication uh, of weather uh, and they're also co- all color coded and uh, are very sensitive uh, they're very very clever uh, bits of kit um, why they're criticizing him for not selecting a manual mode when, you know, he's got all this computerized automation there. The manual mode can be good because it might reveal something that the automated automated system um, has missed. But on the other hand, if you select manual, you can very easily mush the scanner away from the important bit to look at and miss something that the automated boat might give you. There are lots of questions here that I don't think are fully answered. No. Well, the flight data recorder data indicated um, significant wind variations. Um, severe turbulence occurred within the initial 20 seconds. That's a long time of severe turbulence, 20 seconds. Yeah. That must have felt like forever. Uh, this caused variations in the aircraft attitude, uh, altitude, and a sudden airspeed increase, which momentarily exceeded MMO. The aircraft systems responded in order to avoid the overspeed. However, even with the auto thrust reducing the engine thrust and the automatic deployment of the speed brakes, I thought the first officer said that he manually deployed them. He did. Uh, Perhaps it's an automatic system as well. I don't know. Okay. There was an exceedance of the MMO speed that resulted in an overspeed warning lasting three seconds. But you know what? At the time of severe turbulence, they may not even have even yeah. noticed that warning going off. It probably was pretty, pretty crazy. And that warning that doesn't actually indicate that there is danger. There's usually a, a 10, uh, 15% uh, 
um, built-in safety factor there before anything starts falling off. Um, so you, you still got a, a, a wide margin of uh, yeah. safety. So I'm thinking that based on what the commanding captain who had just started their rest um, was, if he had been at controls, I think they would have deviated because he kind of indicated to the captain taking over that that was probably, you know, yeah, he would. He might have had longer to build up a mental picture of what was occurring ahead. And the guy who's just come on, he's, you know, okay, right. Right. He's probably got a quick brief and then off he goes. And he's probably expecting a nice, quiet cruise. That's all he's got to do. Yeah. And he may not have been quite attuned to it. Yeah. Well, there you have it. Severe. Jeff, I'm just going to interrupt here and put something up on the screen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, look at that. Kenneth Sellers just got his instrument rating on August 24th. Woo-hoo. Congratulations, Ken. All right, that's the last time I fly in the cloud. Watch out for those convicted <laughs> uh, clouds. <laughs> yeah, watch out. If you're flying over the Bay of Bengal, um, he'd, he'd make sure right yeah. that you watch. Bengal. Bengal. As in Bengal. the Bengal Tigers. Bengal. Okay, Bay of Bengal. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> All right. Yes, congratulations, Ken. All right, let's move on. Uh, this is a good one. <laughs> we have um, a video clip to play. Yes. Well, Alex, Christine, the FAA confirms to me that two separate flight crews report what, quote, appeared to be a man in a jetpack as they prepared to land at LAX. The pilot sounded quite certain, as you can hear for yourself. That's how we're American 1997. We just passed a guy in a jetpack. American 1997, okay. Thank you. Were they off to your left side or right side? Off the left side, uh, maybe uh, 300 yards or so, about our altitude. Okay, American 1997. That's right. Sunday evening on final approach to LAX, an American Airlines pilot reports, quote, a guy in a jetpack. A second pilot, believed to be a SkyWest flight, confirms a third pilot was on the lookout. We just saw the guy pass by us at jetpack. Jet Blue 23, he's caution. Person in a jetpack reported 300 yards south of the LA final at about 3,000 feet, 10 mile final. Yeah, but it's 23, we're heard, and we are definitely looking. You believe the pilot? Absolutely, I believe the pilot. Uh, there's no question in my mind that that American pilot was very definitive about what he saw out his window. Retired pilot and aviation safety expert Steve Cowell says this could be a misguided stunt. Even the most technologically advanced jetpacks, you know, can only fly very briefly. So it's possible he may have, this person may have gone up and then come down and then driven away. We've all seen images of jetpacks typically used for fun over water for tourists, but not too high off the ground. But 3,000 feet in the paths of jets landing at LAX? Whoever was operating, if it is a jetpack, this was a crazy place to be. A second retired pilot and aviation expert, Fox 11 consulted, also gave the American Airlines pilot the benefit of the doubt, adding if this was in fact a jetpack, it was incredibly dangerous. The danger is that, uh, uh, God forbid, if if, uh, they would have hit this object, whatever it was, uh, could get sucked into the engine at low altitude that could 
cause a, a considerable damage to the aircraft passengers, uh, not considering the person that was in the jetpack. The FAA is investigating, only saying this is, quote, an unverified report, only adding it was a pilot doing the reporting when Fox 11 pressed for answers. They've also notified the LAPD. So far, an unsolved mystery, summed up by one pilot this way. Only in L.A. Only in L.A. Now, it's unclear, Alex and Christine, exactly what's going to happen going forward, because the FAA says they turned this over to the LAPD Air Support Division. The LAPD Air Support Division says they did not get a report. American Airlines won't talk to me. They say talk to the FAA. So... Research has shown that jetpacks can go up to maybe 6,000 feet, but anyone that would have the technological capability and the money to do something like that would certainly not do it on the flight path into LAX. So definitely more to come on this one. Live near LAX, I'm Phil Schumann. Yeah, that was a Fox 11 affiliate in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, American Airlines goes, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't know. Talk never say FAA. never. Just uh, got money and fancy gadgets doesn't mean they have good sense. So, Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's very true. Uh, I'm going to, can I share a screen? Do you mind? No, not at all. I, I haven't done this for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, application window. Uh, oh, damn it. Is it a Chrome tab that you're going to share? Or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, okay, I'm trying then. to do a Chrome tab. Okay. Uh, that's us. If I so you should, when you that, share this, there you go. What do you think that is? A balloon. Um, kite. Yeah, a kite. It's a kite. Yeah. Ah. Now I'm gonna. Can you unshare me? Because I wouldn't know. I we I do that. Um, there we go. Okay. Uh, I think it might have been a kite. Because you can get these man-shaped kites, and if you saw one flying along beside your airplane, you would assume that the guy isn't Superman. <laughs> he would need a jetpack. Uh, it, it's quite possible it was a jetpack, but I'm thinking a more simpler uh, thing might be some kid was flying a kite. It might be. It could be. I don't know. It's more fun to think of it as maybe like Iron Man out there. It is Los Angeles. Yeah, well, if it'd been right. Iron Man, yeah, that would have been great. <laughs> but his butler would have stopped him from colliding with an airline. No, that's true. That's true. Well, anyway, I don't know if we'll ever figure out exactly what uh, happened here, but uh, as the shame, no one got a picture. I know, right? No yeah. one was recording that approach from their seat into you know out the correct side of the the aircraft. That would have been awesome. I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it yeah. would. Oh well. Oh, well, there you go. Particularly if they'd come along and sat on the wing. That would be very cool. That would have been. <laughs> Mind if I pull up a seat here? Is this the smoking section? Yeah, right. Kind of reminiscent of the last show uh, with the uh, TikTok and the person out on the uh, engine. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes, yes, very yes. good. All right, let's continue, shall we? Uh, North Star DC-3 in the colors of Cargo North registration, Charlie Foxtruck. Kilo Golf Lima performing flight 102 from Pickle Lake, Ontario, which is 1900 kilometers northwest of Toronto. Oh, that's a long way northwest of Toronto to Big Trout Lake, Ontario, with three people on board, departed Pickle Lake, but immediately after takeoff, the crew needed to put the aircraft down again onto the ice of Pickle Lake. There were no injuries and the aircraft sustained substantial damage. Uh, let's see. 
So they released this occurred on when March 17th, 2017. And I think we did talk about this uh, shortly after it occurred. But since then, uh, Air Canada, I mean, excuse me, Canada's Transportation Safety Board released their final report on August 31st, concluding that the probable cause of the accident was after lifting the landing gear control handle with his left hand on or near the throttle quadrant, the pilot not flying may have inadvertently moved the fuel condition levers, cutting the fuel to both engines simultaneously. Um, let's see. Oops. Yeah. Whoopsie. Good. Yeah. Basically the main mean. cause of what happened there. They just shut the, um, this they person. Just cut the, fuel yeah. cut the fuel supply. And in a little bit more detail in the final report, they talk about the fact that this occurred to about 200 feet above the ground. So, yeah, so not going to get things. Uh, yeah, at that point, you're landing straight ahead with whatever you got. Yeah, and also uh, now in the in this uh, from the Aviation Herald, uh, they do have a picture of the um, throttle quadrant. Uh, here, let me see. I'm going to uh, go ahead and share this with everybody so they can look at it. Um, let's see. Ta-da. Wish there was like a one button thing that you could just hit and make it happen. Wouldn't that be convenient? Okay. You know, modern technology and all should be. I mean, if if the stream yard was more like an Airbus, then you could do it. But I guess it's much more like a Boeing or a. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of Douglas, um, here we go. Um, You see the power levers on the left or levers propeller levers on the in the middle and then over there on the right those red ones that should probably indicate something important uh, the fuel condition levers and they kind of poke out over to the right now interestingly and you, not in this report but in the final report uh, the the way the landing gear lever is not where most of us would expect it to be that fly more modern airplanes um, do you know where it is, Steph? Have you ever been in a DC-3 cockpit? No, I'm, and I was looking here I to have, see if something looks like a landing. But okay, Nick where, where is so it? Go ahead, go ahead, Nick. It's uh, on the floor between the two. Well, it's it's sort of behind the console on the floor. So yeah, you, more you close, sort of reach closer. down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you just reach straight down behind the console? Yeah, there's two levers down there. One. Uh, so wait, as we're looking one at One powers the, the hydraulics and the other one does the moving. I when I was uh, chatting with Nick Kamachka uh, and uh, sitting in the cockpit of uh, their C forty seven, he showed me uh, you know the sort of things you had to do. It's quite a complicated procedure to uh, whack the gear up and down. Not simple at all. Um, so uh, yeah, but it's uh, so you do have to go past that throttle quadrant and down to get to it. And when you brought your hand back up again, you're going to go past all those levers. Oh, yeah, so it's my. on the other side of the all of the uh, controls. There, it's directly behind those. Directly, on the so floor. looking not behind, but basically in front of. You have to lean past all of that to get. Is that what you're saying? Yes. If you're oh, if okay. you're sitting in your seat, imagine yourself sitting in your seat. You're going to have to lean back in, into the center of the cockpit behind the the center console to get to those. Hmm. That to get like to the undercarriage uh, levers. It I is, but I do notice those fuel condition levers have got to stop. Uh, they do. Got a, a detent yeah. on them. So you're going to have to, and you've got to get them both to, off. Yeah, you'll have to push over and back to get it. Yeah, to. so it doesn't look like it's a necessary, unless they were 
you know, as happens, they get worn and they, you don't need to actually move them inboard to get clear of those uh, detents, perhaps. Uh, so uh, I guess you can bang them. But you bring your hand back up, you're going to uh, have them forward. Is that the correct? That's the run position. Forward, yes. Yeah. yeah you want them in run, put, not stop. Putting your hand down towards the undercarriage is the time you're going to knock them. And you would knock them forward if anything you would think not. Well, if you're reaching from your seat back uh, and down, no, you're going to knock them backwards into the stop position. But they said that mm -hmm. he was using it kind of as a place to kind of rest kind his of hand, rest his hand and turn his body so that he could reach down to get uh, here. Do you see the picture on the, um, uh, that's an, a picture of the landing gear control handle. Um, I guess and it's just to the left of the right seat looks like okay. right behind the uh, center console so yeah um, i mean i would think his art i mean i don't know i can see how it happened but yeah. it still seems like a little bit of effort to make that happen it's not like you could just knock it i think you have to like actually move it in a certain so you'd direction have to, you'd have to pull past the detent there like to the yeah. you know to the yeah. left and then back and that shouldn't be yeah. a terribly easy thing to do it should take a little bit of effort should yeah. Mind you, uh, for what effectively look, I mean, I mean, they call them condition levers. I'm assuming they're fuel valves uh, controls. Uh, mm -hmm. They're very big and they stick up a long way. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm going, perhaps it's because they've got big cables and you need a lot of leverage to move them. Uh, but I would have hoped they would have made them a bit shorter. Smaller, <laughs> yeah. Less, 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 not so less easy to prone bash. to snag, yeah. But if they're really hard to move, uh, which is why they would be large levers, uh, the guy wouldn't necessarily just bang them and not realize. Mm -hmm. Well, this airplane was made in 1940, and they and they've flown these things for quite yeah. a long time. You don't really hear this happening too often. No. Again, so, never yeah, seen that was a good thing. There was ice in terms of recovering the plane. Yeah, because that would have been in the water if it had not been ice. Yeah, and a completely yeah. different uh, outcome, I would imagine. And looking at the shot of the airplane on the um, on the lake bed on the, on the ice, doesn't look like a heck of a lot of damage to it. No, it doesn't. And those all those blades look bent, so it looks like the engines were still rotating when it uh, touched yeah. down. But probably not producing a lot of power. No, mm -mm. no. Probably have auto auto feathering. I think probably. Okay, so. Interesting. Uh, so, bit of a pickle on Pickle Lake, then. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, I really like the um, <laughs> names of these lakes in Canada, Shark North of Toronto. Write that down. Write that down, Liz. Yeah. Pickle Lake. <laughs> pickle, pickle on Pickle Lake. Pickle on Pickle Lake. <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is when I'm doing the editing of the show, there are so many great show titles after that. And we just can't remember them <laughs> immediately yeah, afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, darn. That would have been a good one. Oh, well. And usually by the time I figure that out, Nick has already done the artwork for whatever title we've come up with right after the show. <laughs> That's kind of a moot point. This is an interesting one, I think. And Liz thought so as well. That's why she put it in our news folder. Um, item F. And this is from One Mile at a Time blog. And uh, this is a, a story regarding Suriname Airways, uh, Boeing 777. Now, Suriname Airways has three jets in their fleet, two 737s, and uh, they're both 737 uh, 
well, I'm not sure what version, and one triple seven. And they, um, I guess Suriname is a Dutch col or used to be a Dutch colony. And the triple uh, seven was to be used on their one international route, a very long haul route between the Netherlands and Suriname, which is in northern South America. And they they procured the airplane a while back, uh, but it has not yet been used on this route. And instead, before acquiring the triple uh, seven, which caused the board of directors at Suriname Airways to um, suspend the um, chief executive officer, I believe, for making that decision. I guess he did it kind of on his own without asking anybody on the board of directors. Uh, but I guess maybe he's been reinstated. But um, anyway, before that, they were using, let's see, from 20, 2004 to 2010, they were using a 747-300. From 2010 to 2019, they were using an A340-300. In mid-2019, it was announced that Suriname Airways would replace its single A340 with a Boeing 777-200ER, which is more fuel efficient, and that they would acquire it from Singapore Airlines aircraft. Here it is. The decision was a controversial move and even got Suriname Airways boss at the time suspended, as he apparently made the decision without consulting the board. Oops. And um, so, why, why were you even talking about this? Well, since they have... Uh, Procured the 777-200 in the beginning of this year, 2020. Uh, they haven't been operating it, and they're saying the reason is, well, it's a it requires ETOPS, um, extended range operations, uh, which requires the airplane to be certified to do it and the air crew to be certified. And when they were operating the 340, it wasn't a problem because that was a four-engine airplane, so um, they they didn't need to worry so much about ETOPS. Um, and the th interesting thing here, the article says, or the blog here says that the reason the airline's giving for not operating this airplane is that they haven't been able to get their pilots to a simulator to get the ETOPS certification, which I think is kind of a, eh, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a very reasonable excuse for, I mean, certainly you can find a 777 simulator somewhere they're saying that they were oh they're like they're like you know they're everywhere can you everybody operates triple sevens they've got to be hundreds of them around the world yeah, and the the, and the uh, spokesperson for the airline says well you know we were we were trying to get them in, to miami to um to get them certified but um because of covid uh, i guess the u.s is not allowing travel from suriname to the U.S. or something. I don't know. But why not just put them on? Well, they're operating now a wet lease uh, from Air Belgium, another uh, A340-300 uh, from Suriname to Amsterdam. Well, heck, put the pilots on that flight, and I'm sure they're going to be able to find a, a 777 simulator in, in the Amsterdam, right? Wouldn't you think? Uh, yeah. Just not. There must be some at Schiphol, I, I would yeah. guess. I mean. Something doesn't yeah, sound. It's, it's such it's such a, a, a you know it's it's a airline that is the most successful Boeing uh, aircraft. Uh, you know, it's overcome the seven forty seven as the most successful Boeing uh, big airliner. Um, so, um, yeah, someone will have have one. Yeah. I don't. I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's just such a weird time in the world, and Suriname is not a 
huge place. I guess it just depends on, you know, the whole environment with COVID and diplomatic relations yeah. and everything else. And maybe, maybe they legitimately are having a difficult time of it. I don't know. I wonder if uh, Suriname is particularly badly affected and that no, nobody yeah. wants to let him in. Don't know. Could be. I think I have, I'm ha I have a feeling that it may have something to do with the actual certification of the 777-200ER and because it's not, not a pilot. Cheap. Yeah. It's expensive to get these things properly certified to do this. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm they not sure it was a great move for, for them to move away from four engines, to be truthful. Apparently not. They thought, oh, look, think of all the money we're going to save with fuel, but now they're yeah. probably not, you know. The, the 34300 was not that bad in comparison uh, with, say, the 600 or a 747. They're really quite reasonably uh, fuel efficient uh, because of the small engines. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, they say that if they operated the 777 right now because of the ETOPS thing, they can't be with more than 60 minutes away from any uh, suitable um, alternate, uh, alternate airfield, which would require them to basically follow along just off the coast of the United States and Canada and Greenland and, you know, the, the way out of the way. They said it adds three hours to the flight time uh, to do that as opposed to just going straight across the uh, Atlantic uh, which they do so now. So much for their fuel savings. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I don't think they thought it out all the whole way. <laughs> yeah. It's such a shame. Anyway, so big head scratcher on that one, I think. Something weird going on. Yeah. All right. Um, moving on. Um, oh, we need to play this. Well, hey, flying cars. <laughs> video time uh yeah why don't we go ahead and play the video i think we'll be able to talk over it uh yeah looks like our mics are unmuted uh so here we have the video of the SkyDrive cartivator um uh what would you call it a private flying car i'd call it an oversized drone with yeah. someone driving it yeah. It doesn't really look much like the Jetsons. It, no, it's like a Star Wars um, motorcycle. What do they call those ones that where they dash through the forest? Mm -hmm. and that's what it looks like. It's great. Yeah. So let's see. The decades-old dream of zipping around the sky as simply as driving on highways may be becoming less illusory. I don't like the fact that it's only got four, four motors. It needs another two, at least. Well, you know what? I think maybe each of those black things is actually an electronic motor, so there could be... Oh, there's actually could eight. Be eight? Yeah. Ah, in, th in that case. All right, I'll forgive him. Okay. So you have uh, Captain Nick's stamp of approval. <laughs> actually, I, I quite like that. I mean, that looks quite cool, doesn't it? I don't that know. I, I, I watched people driving regular automobiles this afternoon, and, you know... <laughs> This guy's doing a very precise job of flying this little neat box around this practice area here. But um, it doesn't look like it's really easy. I mean, it's kind of bobbling around a little bit. I know this is one of its first actual real flights. It's only getting about, I don't know what, 10 feet above the surface of this test area. Yeah. Um, it's got it a lot about three bit. miles an hour. Yeah. Um, the company is called SkyDrive Incorporated. Um, it has carried out a successful, though modest, test flight with one person on board. I guess they've done some other uh, test flights before. And uh, what did the article say? <laughs> um, 
they less weren't successful. Very, yeah, it was less successful. Um, darn it, where is it? A, dem- a demonstration flight three years ago went poorly. Poorly. <laughs> yes, it went poorly. There we go. Yeah, I did have it. There we go. I had to scroll down further. Um, yeah, you would thought this would have the same stabilization system as a drone, in which case it would normally be like rock steady. You'd think. And there'd be nothing to, uh, yeah. I don't know. Have you seen me fly a drone? <laughs> I, I, oh. I've, I've seen Fred fly one, and that's yeah, definitely he's not good, rock He's steady. good at it. <laughs> really good at it. And that, those things don't have stabilization systems on them. It's, it's all him, no. Fred. Um, Absolutely. Battery sizes, air traffic control, and other infrastructure issues are among the many potential challenges to commercializing them. Um, now, I love this guy. Um, this is uh, Sanjeev Singh. Professor uh, at the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon University uh, near Pittsburgh, uh, who is also working on an EVTOL aircraft. Many things have to happen. If they cost $10 million, no one is going to buy them. If they fly for five minutes, no one is going to buy them. If they fall out of the sky every so often, no one is going to buy them, he said in a telephone interview. And he's right, you know? Yeah. Oh, sure. It's, doesn't take many of these things to just fall out of the sky and kill people. People go, mm, maybe yeah, not, not such a great idea. Yeah. I haul boxes is making a good point there. Well, there you go. Suriname airway, Suriname, no ETOPS with eight engines. <laughs> <laughs> just, just pick up a bunch of those and let people fly themselves individually across the yeah, not too many passengers. Yeah. They go be able to go along. And I'm not sure how far from Suriname you're going to make it uh, in five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah good luck with that. Yeah. Have fun with that. Anyway, well, looks like some people are making some progress, albeit rather slow, but we'll see. Yeah. They claim that that's the future. And finally, this is a good one. Uh, a feel good story. The runway lights broke, but Iggyagig guided in a child medevac flight with headlights. Iggyagig. Uh, late Friday night. That's, I mean, that's what they called it when I was there. Uh, late Friday night, a child in Igiwig needed to be medevac. <laughs> you change it every time you say it. Yeah, but you know what? I think it, look at the word. I think it's probably Igiagig, not, I mean, not yeah, yeah. Igiagig. This, I just have to be careful here because this pronunciation guide right there i actually got from the new york times so it could be really really wrong Um, they really know how to pronounce inuit names that's the point (laughs) (laughs) uh the small southwest alaska village is right at the mouth of the (laughs) river uh, to be fair we don't know how to pronounce these names no i'm not a uh native um eskimo so I don't know how to pronounce those things. LifeMed sent a King Air flight over from Kodiak. I got that one. Uh, that usually takes about 30 minutes. Thank you. Oh. But this year's, uh, but this year, the village's state-owned airport has had some problems with runway lights. In the other article, it said that is because of vandalism. Uh, when residents went to turn them on to guide the flight in, nothing happened. Usually, this would stop a plane from being able to land. Ida Nelson had just climbed out of a steam bath and was getting dressed when she heard the Life Med plane fly over her village. When they first flew over, I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds like a weird vehicle. I've never heard that truck before. And it wasn't a truck. It was an airplane. 
It was 11 p.m. or after 11 p.m., she said. She knew something was wrong. Anytime there's any type of planes flying after dark, you always assume it's going to be something urgent and an emergency. Uh, She can see the airport from her steam bath, and when she looked to see what was going on, the runway lights weren't on. Can I stop you for a second? That sounds like the perfect place to do your spotting from. Airplane coming from your steam bath. Steam bath. Yes. Well, apparently she yeah. had a very uh, commanding view from her. Thanks, fantastic. Steam. I commend her for the position of her steam bath. Yes, I do too. Stamp of another stamp of approval from. Captain. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. So nor- she says, normally if you push the button like ten or fifteen times, the lights will just light up. But they where she's talking about the microphone. Uh, well, usually seven frequency. times. 10 or 15. Yeah, or 10, 15. That'll do it too, Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) But they didn't, and so the medevac plane flew over the village. She hopped onto her four-wheeler, sped the few hundred yards to the runway. Her neighbor jumped in to help too. She started calling other people and waking them up, like, get up, get out of bed, come line up on the runway, she said. Uh, I think she's talking about in their vehicles. Um, That's (laughs) pretty much almost every household in this village. (laughs) Pretty much every cell phone. (laughs) Quick, come and lie on the runway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be a bigger mess they need more <laughs> medevac flights coming in for those people yeah uh she said uh, her uh, nelson said her neighbor made 32 calls for help uh, that's yeah. pretty much almost every household in this village uh, a local pilot got a hold of the pilot of the life med plane villagers drove their cars trucks and four-wheelers toward the runway Nelson says the weather was calm. The medevac pilot circled as she and others on the ground coordinated people via phone and radio. She said a lot of people got up out of bed and were running around in their pajamas. They staggered vehicles facing east, running the whole length of the runway, lighting the pilot's way so he could be able to see the end of the runway, she said. And then they waited. I was anxious and nervous and was like, what if this was my baby waiting for that plane, she said. As the pilot got ready to land, an on-call health aide told everyone to stay put when the airplane touched down. And so once she was able to get the patient on the plane, everyone, everybody still stayed in their positions, and he was able to taxi out, taxi down the runway, and take off. No one from LifeMed Alaska answered the phone Friday evening, but on Facebook, the company posted a photo briefly. It's completely dark, except for a straight line of lights off in the distance. Uh, the company wrote, what appears to be a blurry, dark photo is actually a view of what an amazing community can do with a lot of determination. So, anyway, well done. Oh, that's yeah, great story. feel good, Love definitely. It. And hopefully, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, very good for the kid that needed the services, too. Yeah, hopefully. the. I think that somewhere I read that the, it turned out well for the, good. Good, the good. child. So, that is it for part one news segment. And now would be a great time to get to know us a little bit. <laughs> There's me uh, giving the single finger salute, sign of salute, sign of appreciation, yeah. sign of appreciation. <laughs> Thank you, Nick, for putting that nice pose in there for me. I, my pleasure. Yeah, you, you're happier on the little one underneath. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's because he's hanging out yeah. with me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he knows what will happen if he doesn't smile. Yeah, because she's holding that um, needle. That in yeah. Her. Yeah. Anywho, so um, it was last Thursday when we recorded the last episode. And you'll remember I was in the kitchen of Steph's home on the lake. 
And uh, I was there mainly because the very next day, and we talked about it in the last episode, we were going to uh, be on the last flights, uh, our last airline flights Mm -hmm. that Captain Jeff, Colonel Jeff, uh, would be commanding in his airline career at American Airlines. We can say it now because he is no longer employed by the company. And so, uh, yeah, that's what happened. We recorded the show, and then the next day, uh, we headed down to the, or up to the airport, I guess. Yeah, it's north of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, we were able to, uh, well, Steph and her dad, Mike, and myself uh, met up with uh, Mike Carrolls. Uh, he, he flew in from Atlanta that morning, and then uh, we waited for Jeff's flight to come in from Newark, I believe. Newark, yeah. Mm-hmm. Newark. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we we talked with him and we got on the flight and flew from Charlotte to Jacksonville. And then a short period of time on the ground in Jacksonville, we got back on the airplane and flew back up to Charlotte. And I was very honored and fortunate that I was able to ride on Jeff's jump seat. And I was able to record a bit. And I think I'll play that right now share that with everybody here we go ladies and gentlemen captain jeff here one of the captain jeffs on captain jeff the good looking one colonel jeff's jump seat on his very last flight for ajax airlines and uh we're between jacksonville and charlotte right now about to start the arrival procedure into charlotte but before we do I'm going to ask Jeff to say a few things to the wonderful APG community. Oh, I don't even know what to say. It's been amazing. Uh, it was, it's been a treat. Jeff's been on the jump seat going up, uh, coming down to Jacksonville from Charlotte and then going back up to uh, Charlotte. Uh, just so you know, Dr. Stefan, her dad, Mike, are in Neville like this. She's in 1A, both legs. And uh, for those of you who know, Dispatcher Mike from the Flying and uh, Life podcast is back in uh, uh, coach there. So it's um, bittersweet landing. Uh, true to form, dispatcher Mike made sure that air traffic control knew it was my Finney flight. And uh, about three radio changes later, they finally stopped congratulating me. Um, I'm just uh, happy that it's kind of over now. Uh, with all that's going on with the airline industry, it's a good time to retire. I'm looking forward to my next career, uh, number three. Uh, I've uh, landed a job with an outfit uh, in North Jersey flying a a Falcon 2000 around. So a different kind of flying, different kind of life there. Uh, been a real joy having Jeff with me since I was on his jump seat for his last flight. Although I didn't get to see his last landing because we had to do what's called an auto land in uh, Atlanta because the weather was so bad. So uh, I'm giving him two landings instead. So in that regard, uh, got to sign off. Time to start going uh, down to uh, Charlotte. Time getting busy. So you'll be hearing more from me. Thanks. Yeah, things are going to start getting busy now. And so we're going to go ahead and stop this recording. And I'm sure we're going to get more uh, regarding the retirement of Captain Jeff from Ajax Airline a little bit later. And that was the plan. 
but I didn't follow through on that plan. That was the only audio. <laughs> we, we didn't do any recording job, later on that no. evening. Nothing. And, Sorry. And we just we had a good here, time. Like, and, uh, right, right there. She didn't remind me to do any more recording, so I'm going to put part yeah, of it. What a pair of podcasting professionals. <laughs> know, Thank you. Right? No, yeah. hey, at least I got the uh, recording from the cockpit. Come on. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. That was good. Yeah, it and, sounded uh, like it was in your car. It was actually very quiet, wasn't it? Uh, thirty thousand feet. Yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. take your word for it. Video oh. would have been better. Okay. Well, well, you know, I guess we don't get Captain Nick's stamp of approval. Or <laughs> nope. Nope. The way we've uh, Lane Lane might have figured out what happened here. Oh, alcohol got in the way, says Lane. Uh, no. <laughs> Come on, there was no drinking at, at all. Zero. Uh, Tell us about what happened uh, after we uh, landed in Charlotte stuff. What happened? So, um, yeah, we came back to my place um, and actually got out on the um, the lake for a little while. Still very nice lake weather here. So, um, and hung out on the dock for a little bit. And um, Colonel Jeff kind of spent the rest of the evening regaling us with stories from his career. Um, he's got a lot of stories around for a while and uh yeah it was it was really very pleasant and i think we were out until gosh it was probably 11 or almost midnight by the time we kind of called it quits mm -hmm. and got to bed yeah we so. didn't really didn't really want to stop but it was kind of starting to get late and yeah uh, we told jeff and i think that some other people have uh suggested to him maybe his daughter or i can't remember exactly who he said was that said that he needs to write all this stuff down and mm -hmm. write a book of his experiences because yeah, he should i mean they're they're great stories and always yeah. fun to to hear so, so yeah, yeah there's probably a, a sleep education uh, medical unit there that could use them <laughs> <laughs> wow sleep therapy unit colonel no 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 therapy. colonel jeff stories are, are you're not getting captain next stamp of approval. <laughs> <laughs> he was an eagle driver after all <laughs> <laughs> yeah Jeff is uh, such, such a great friend of mine and of the show. And uh, we were just uh, so thrilled that we were able to uh, share his last airline flights. On, well, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't really supposed to be the last, last flights and it just kind of no. worked out that way. So yeah, I'm it was going to be a big grand uh, arrival into Newark, Newark. on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And he uh, learned a few days before the trip started that, uh, the last day was going to be a double deadhead. Um, and so he was he not said, going to be flying nah. the airplane at all. So yeah. yeah, he said, I'm not going to end it like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm there. glad a few of us were able to be there. It was, it was nice. Yeah. Nice day for flying too. We got a, a very hmm. nice tour of all of Lake Norman, courtesy of Charlotte uh, arrivals, air traffic control. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. Uh, get my seal. Basically to, to Virginia. Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> then, it's like oh my gosh where are we go oh, okay yeah i know where we're going yeah. oh forever but a little busy yeah yeah that happens charlotte's been, yeah. charlotte's been busy we get mm -hmm. and sometimes go out to alabama before we make our turn mm -hmm. okay um so, so yeah that was anyway. a lot of fun thank you guys for uh for coming over and uh spending the evening and oh, yeah. my pleasure to to host i'm glad i i feel i wish more people um uh have been able to come like especially Nick and Liz and mm -hmm. that would have been fun, but yeah, it's a weird year. So good you know, times, you know, good times. Yeah. Yeah. 
But yeah, and I've been there in the shop. What a shame. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, and so if you're, I know you're listening, Jeff, because he has listened to every single airline pilot guy show, including the uh, forty some odd shows that I did before I rebranded to airline pilot guy. So that was the Catholic pilot days. So, um, so he's my number one fan, our our number one fan, and uh, we congratulate you, sir. For your great airline career, and now you're starting your new corporate jet career. So, mm-hmm. oh yeah, cool. we missed out on uh, yeah seeing Armando. Armando that day. He had he's had some some stuff going on in his personal life, so we're thinking about you, Armando. And um, yeah, we'll definitely catch up with you at some point. Yeah, we missed you, Armando. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's see what else. Um, yeah, not a lot going on with me. Um, other, did I start off on this? I guess nobody else has talked about what has no, been happening. You started, yeah. Um, so uh, I'll go ahead and um, just throw this in. It really has nothing to do with me and what I've been doing, except for making mistakes. And uh, you know, we we strive to to hit that fifty percent mark, and apparently I dropped the ball on the uh, last episode when we were talking about uh, video footage and the I ball. The B, I dropped the B ball. <laughs> and uh, so Roger Stern is uh, here to help us. Greetings, APG crew. Let's go back to episode 448 when you got into a discussion about the term B roll. Captain Jeff said confidently that the B stands for background. Yes. He went on to stake his life on it, which I'm sure he realized at the time might be a mistake. All right. Well, thank you, Roger, for sending in the uh, feedback. And, uh, oh, wait, was there more? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Hang on. Let me see. There might be a little bit more left in this song. Yep. It was. Before explaining the term, let me define it for those not familiar with B-roll. It's the video shot during a TV news story to help explain what's going on and complement the reporter's narration. If the reporter is talking about a plane, the B-roll is the video of that plane. So why is it called that? Don't feel bad. I suspect even many of those in the industry can't answer that question because the term is anachronistic, like a collection of songs being called an album. B-roll is an old film term. It came into use decades ago before the advent of truly portable video equipment when you use 16-millimeter film for TV news coverage. Back then, to put the story on the air, the editor would splice together two rolls of film of equal length one called the A-roll, and the other the B-roll. The B-roll would contain what I just described, the film referenced by the reporter which illuminated the story. The A-roll would contain the main audio elements, some with visuals, some without. It would have the reporter's narration, film from interviews, what we call sound bites, and very likely film of the reporter talking into the camera, describing what's going on while standing in front of something visual. At airtime, those two rolls of film would run simultaneously in two separate projectors. The audience would hear the main audio from the A-roll, but the video would switch back and forth. When you heard the reporter's narration on the A-roll, which would have no visuals because it was recorded after the fact, you would see the B-roll. Bottom line, there is no word for the B and B-roll, which simply reference the second roll of film. This is Radio Roger, over and out. Just as I said, B-roll stands for 
background role. <laughs> That's what I got from that. No. Uh, yeah, sure. I did. I'm sorry. No, I didn't. I, I did something that slightly different. You got something different? <laughs> yeah. That's For interesting. Bacon. That was good stuff. Uh, I, I actually enjoy learning little uh, trivial information like that. And uh, that's that's a cool story. Thank you, Roger. Uh, Have we recorded 448 already? No. <laughs> I think we need to fix uh, help Roger out with his 50% accuracy just a little bit. Oh, right. Yeah, What's the sure. show number that we're on right now? 441. Hmm. He was Did in he? the future. He was on 440. <laughs> he was, yeah. So we knew that we were going to talk about it again. Seven I think we now. will probably. We probably will. Yeah, we'll have to make a note to cover this in 448. <laughs> we had to pimp you a little bit, man, for, for you pimping us, right? <laughs> no, really, honestly, thank you very much, Roger, for keeping us straight and also for providing those great intros that you've been doing for so many episodes now. We do really appreciate that. Okay, so, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. Um, Nick, how about yourself? Uh, well, uh, after my lovely uh, exploits with uh, Captain Al and Pip uh, um, last week, no flying this week. Very oh, sad. no. Oh. Oh, well. You're not going to make that a weekly uh, thing? He's <coughs> drowning his sorrows. Excuse me, just losing my voice. Here. <laughs> I would love to, but uh, I don't know if Pip can stand letting me land his airplane too often. <laughs> Oh, you can just Pip get or the or the airplane, uh, both. Oh, okay, both. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all I did was a bit of bowling. Uh, I had uh, three semi-finals to play for our competitions, and I managed to win through uh, every one. So uh, on finals day, I have three games to play. So that'll be great fun. It'll give me something to give for. Hopefully, I'll come home with some silver. And that's about it, really. Uh, other than that, the weather has really started to break here in the UK. It's got a lot colder and uh, the rain's coming, so uh, the autumn is truly upon us, I'm afraid. It's just such a shame. Well, just come over here to the uh, southeastern United States and you can um, get very, very hot and humid weather. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's not my favorite either. So somewhere in between would be nice. Yeah. Currently, a, 93 a, degrees Fahrenheit. Ooh. Somewhere in a desert island with no, with no COVID. That'd be lovely. <laughs> no, that's here. <laughs> okay. Steph, being extremely hot, uh, what else is going on with you? Oh, my goodness. I went for a run last night. I'm trying to get back on the, uh, you know, workout horse. Uh, all these races and things canceled, and it got hot and humid, and I lost a little bit of motivation to exercise as much as usual. So, I did promise that my coach I'd go out and run last night and it was at 10 o'clock still feels like 88 degrees Fahrenheit and 77% humidity. And that was pretty gross. So um, that's neither here nor there, but flying stuff going on. Um, so you guys were here on Friday for Colonel Jeff's flights that happened Friday last week after we recorded um, Saturday, the weather in Charlotte was kind of, meh. I don't know if you remember Saturday morning, it was pretty well, rainy and, oh, I drove some really really rainy yeah so it, it wasn't wasn't so great so no flying on saturday sunday was beautiful so we flew jumpers all day long and then um had to ferry a couple aircraft around for for various scheduled maintenance you know 100 hour inspections and whatnot so um 
that takes us through um, opposing bases um, territory, uh, the mythical triad region. So one of these times I'm going to get to talk to one of them that did not happen on Saturday, but or on Sunday, oh. but. Um, is that the Bermuda it, Triad? It is, yes. The Bermuda Triad, okay. yes. Uh, <laughs> Where airplanes disappear, uh, never to be seen again. Coming, coming very close. They're always one of them's there, usually just not on frequency at the time that I'm actually talking uh-huh. on the radio. So, but we'll get there. Yeah. Cool. But anyway, yeah. So that was my my week, and and I've been super busy working recently. This week has been much better. So that has been a kind of a nice uh, reprieve for me. Very good. doesn't feel as hectic. doesn't feel as, you know, running around from point A to point B and not having a time, ha- having time to catch my uh, breath in between. So. Excellent. It's always good to catch your breath. <sighs> okay. All right. Well, that's about it. I think we should keep this thing moving on. I'm with Nick. Try to knock Co- out some uh, coffee fund. So, oh, I need to do the coffee fun. Thank you, Liz. Perfect. Perfect timing. Right. Yes, good Perfect timing. time to, to recharge your beers. So here we go. Let me play some uh, coffee fun music. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. Coffee Fund, your way to support the show financially. That was uh, Jeff Smith, by the way, singing the Java Jive, the APG version. Thank you very much, sir. Um, a couple different ways to do this. Um, the Coffee Fund Classic Method. And three community members used it since the last show. Alistair Kerr. Uh, Ruben Phillips and Randolph Ackerman, Randy Ackerman. So they all use the Coffee Fund Classic method, which you can use for a one-time donation or a recurring donation. And the other way to participate in the Coffee Fund is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And basically you pledge a certain amount per episode and uh, you can set a max um, expenditure for the month and really helps us out. So a majority of the folks that uh, contribute to the coffee fund are uh, using Patreon. And since the last episode, a couple of new producers, Warren Dixon and Alan Davis, new patrons of the show. So thank you guys. If you're interested in finding out more about how you can join this great group of folks, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Captain, incoming message. All right, let's start off with this from our good friend, George Nolly, who is the host of the Ready for Takeoff podcast. You can find that at readyfortakeoffpodcast.com. Regarding calling out to go around when I was about to be furloughed in 1981, I had already been downgraded to B737 flight engineer. I know there's no such position, but that's what it was called. Okay. United was losing money hand over fist and the captain on my trip didn't care about saving fuel. He was a player, had a different girlfriend on every layover and had a hot date for our final landing. So he was flying final way too fast. I said, 
I'm being furloughed, and it looks like you have stock in Shell Oil. He ignored me. Then, since we were unstabilized, I said, go around. He ignored me. So in a very loud voice, I looked up at the CVR microphone on the overhead display and said, second officer to voice recorder, I recommend go around. So he went around. All right. Interesting story. I can't, so I gather that he was a first officer, but he was con- called a second officer sitting in the right seat. I don't get that. No, he was flight engineer. Well, I know, but there is no. He was downgraded. Oh, 737 no flight? Yeah. Oh. Oh, okay. Sorry, I was half on the jump he, seat. He's saying he's like one door or one foot out the door being furloughed there. So, well, yeah. no, I think that he was actually, they actually, yeah, okay. George, send us some more feedback and explain with a little bit more detail what you mean. I mean, did did you sit in the jump seat for every flight? Maybe, maybe he really meant to write. He was thinking about being downgraded to flight engineer. That doesn't exist. And he meant to write first officer instead of. No, I think that he said, no, I know there's no such position, but that's no, what no, it was. I no, I think mm-hmm. he meant to say flight engineer. Anyway, we need. Maybe, we- maybe he felt like he was a flight engineer on this particular flight because of the captain's. Uh, no, I don't think I'll no. see that either. George, send us some feedback and let us know what exactly you were talking about because <laughs> we're confused. Just say, shut up, Steph. Shut up. I wish I had. I need to make one. Shut up, Steph. <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, uh, Liz, uh, would you put that overlay on here? We have uh, George says, regarding the aerotoxic incident on JetBlue you discussed, your listeners might want to hear Ready for Takeoff episode 108. Uh, which is entitled Aerotoxic Syndrome. Fume events can be very serious and have even contributed to pilot deaths. I always carry a carbon filter N95 mask when I travel, and if I smell dirty socks, well, go on. Or here, I have some advice, George. If you smell dirty socks, maybe do some laundry. I was just going to say, <laughs> put your shoes back on. Don't be so mean. Poor first officer. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we have on the screen there for those who uh, are watching us or watching the video. That's uh, his um, from his podcast website. I have and, a T-shirt. Uh, I do too. Mm, very cool. Very nice T-shirt. Anywho, so uh, as always, thank you, George, for sending in feedback to our show. Captain Joe sent us some audio feedback. Here we go. Dear APG crew, it's Captain Joe from the beautiful city of Berlin in Germany. I'm a captain on the A320, and today I have a question for you. What's the most embarrassing passenger announcement you ever had to make? Well, no question without a story to share. Today I tell you a story I experienced a couple of years ago. It was a flight from Berlin to Istanbul, and just after liftoff, when we were raising the landing gear, I saw a small about spurt just in front of our windshield. It was a really small one, about the size of a sparrow, and a second after I've spotted it, it ended its life on our windshield. Well, aircraft continued to fly fine. The, all the engine indications looked normal and airspeed and altitude information were as they were suspected to be. And after brief coordination with my first officer, we decided to continue our flight. 
Uh, when we passed level 100, I wrote everything down in our maintenance logbook and texted the information to our maintenance department. The remainder of the flight went uneventful, and when we just left our cruising altitude in the descent towards Istanbul, we received an answer from our maintenance department. That's something I will never forget. It was like, uh, dear colleagues, uh, we were trying to contact our contracted maintenance provider in Istanbul for two hours, but did not get any answer. We called your handling agent to go to the office and she said that nobody was there. We contacted two other maintenance providers at your destination and both told us that they do not have any time to perform a bird strike inspection for the next hours. So if your fuel status is still sufficient, please divert to Sofia. Everything will be arranged for you. Well, Istanbul has a population of more than 15 million people, and I'm pretty sure that some of them are qualified to write off a bird strike. I took a deep breath, clicked the mic button, informed ATC that we have to divert to Sofia. I had to confirm twice that we do not declare an emergency and that they can expect normal operation. And after everything was arranged, I called our purser, informed him about the issue. He couldn't believe it either. And then I took a deep breath, clicked the mic button again, and made the PA. In my experience, it's usually the best thing to stick with the truth, and that's what I did. I told my passengers uh, that due to lack of maintenance engineers, uh, we have to divert to Sofia, told them about the bird strike, that everything was fine, that the aircraft is still safe to fly, that's just an issue of paperwork and legal requirements, which was true. After landing in Sofia, everything was arranged for us. Uh, the maintenance engineer in Sofia checked our flaps and the other flight controls visually, took a look into our engines, inspected our P2 and static parts, and used a single wet wipe to clean the mess on our windshield. It took another two minutes to do the paperwork. We lifted up enough fuel to continue our flight to Istanbul. And when I went back into the cabin, about 150 pairs of eyes were focused on me, saying, well, we just cannot believe what you've just told us. The flight back to Istanbul went uneventful and we arrived there with a delay of less than two hours. That's what a sp single sparrow can do to your aircraft, and I talk about the bird, not about the rocket. Small bird, small impact, but big impact on your flight. So... Hope everybody of you get some airtime until the COVID-19 crisis is over. All the best to you. Thanks for the great show and enjoy the last days of summertime. Bye. Well, thank you, Captain Joe. And uh, we're uh, enjoying airtime right now on StreamYard, <laughs> YouTube. And <laughs> that's the only kind of airtime. Actually, it was it was fun to get back in an airplane uh, when uh, last Friday I got to ride the jump seat back to from Charlotte to Jacksonville and back. That was, I thought, oh yeah, I remember this <laughs> sort of. Okay. Jeff. So what uh, was, or has been your most embarrassing PA? Uh, I, I was telling Liz, I said, I can't really think of any embarrassing PAs I've had to make to the like legitimate PAs, but 
I think for me, the most embarrassing thing that I have, I've done is done a very long PA going from Atlanta to um, Newark uh, on the air traffic control frequency. Nah, yes, I think we've all done that. <laughs> yeah, that was the most embarrassing. Did you get applause afterwards? Like- uh, got a lot of comments. Come mm-hmm. on, commentary. Yeah, um, some positive, mostly not. <laughs> it was actually, actually all pretty good. They they all complimented my PA and they said, now you should probably tell your passengers. <laughs> yeah, it's not. I love it. How about you, Nick? Any embarrassing PAs? Oh, I'm trying to think back. And I, I think, you know, if you get a series of problems uh, and you have to apologize, um, you know, every time something compounds to make the problem worse, and the situation more difficult, you have to find a way to apologize with more sincerity and make a deeper apology, it seems. And I remember a trip where um, we got on the aircraft and the engineers were all sitting there, and we said, oh, what's the problem? He said, oh, this aircraft just come out the hangar. It's uh, got a history of air bleed leaks, but we think you'll be fine. And I went, oh, uh, by the way, an air bleed leak, uh, there's lots of pneumatics coming from the engines that feed down through the wings and into the aircraft to pressurize and do other jobs. And uh, there are a lot of sensors around those pipes because the uh, air out of the engines is extremely hot and can do a lot of damage very quickly. Your wings are full of fuel, so you don't want uh, you know your wings to go boom so we t- treat this particular emergency quite seriously but this aircraft had a history of false uh, bleed leak warnings um anyway uh we said okay well you fixed it have you oh yeah yeah, yeah but pretty sure we fixed it so i said okay we climbed in got all the passengers absolutely packed airplane because ba were having a lot of strikes so, um, you know, everyone had transferred across. We got to New York and uh, we started off. And of course, uh, eventually I, I got to the point where we started an engine and bing, uh, bleed air leak uh, warning. So uh, the engineers all went, oh, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I thought we had fixed it. Yeah, exactly. So then began about 45 minutes or an hour of of, uh, technical efforts to get rid of the problem. And eventually they said, no, we can't do it. And, of course, I'm making a PA every 10 minutes. Uh, So we have to disembark everybody. um, And then uh, we need to find a new airplane, which we managed to move all the catering across, get back everyone on board. We were only delayed four hours. So uh, we eventually got on the new airplane and uh, set off, and uh, the uh, occasional thunderstorms at uh, JFK had turned into a mass front of thunderstorms. Mm. And as we came down over Boston, we couldn't get more than halfway to JFK before we were turned around and sent back to Boston and where we were told to hold. Uh, and eventually we just didn't have enough fuel to hold for long enough. And we, I diverted to Boston at that point, uh, we ran out of crew duty time. <laughs> so 
we couldn't wait for the weather to clear and take the passengers onwards. We had to climb off and go to a hotel. So, you know, it was just a day of making apologies. And it was just, you know, you just so Mm. desperate to think of something new to say to Mm -hmm. to show how sorry you are that you screwed everyone's holiday plans. It's not ideal for us either, is what you really need to know. Like, we're not enjoying this any more than you are. Yeah, I know, but uh, I, I think by that point they were beyond being ah, yeah. controlled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did they get put up for the night and then flown? No, no, they got pair. put on buses, buses? and driven uh, to New York from Boston. From Boston? Yeah. What's fun? I, I had a word with the ground crew. Luckily, we had uh, Virgin staff at uh, Boston, one of our destinations, and I said, uh, oh, God, how are the passengers taking it? And she's grinned at me, amazingly resilient woman, and said, oh, we've only got a few screamers. <laughs> <laughs> and they're all asking for your name and phone number. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Information. Not one of those trips where I was handing out my business cards. Yeah. No. no. Well, wow. I don't have to make PAs, so that's a good thing. Not yeah. yet. Not Maybe yet. one of these days. Maybe one of these days. I have had some, <laughs> you know, embarrassing moments of, like, just screwing up radios and making incorrect calls too so mm-hmm. no my, no never but my best one most recently was um not in one of our aircraft a different aircraft but i was like ah, i got the radio side of this so um but the radios com one and com two were basically flipped from what they were in the aircraft i had just been flying and one of the um local CTAF frequencies is just overrun with like noise and garbage all the time. So I thought I turned down the volume on that. And then I went to call um, for a Bravo clearance to Charlotte. Nothing happened. And I called again and then I called again and finally I was like, Oh, I turned down the volume on the wrong radio, uh, which is why I can't hear them. And they're like, <laughs> uh, we've heard you just fine. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, the last you ready for your clearance yet? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, we're, yeah, we're here, definitely, and I can hear you now, so thanks. Um, yeah. I was just Love listening it. to uh, <laughs> the latest um, Opposing Bases, I believe, uh, mm-hmm. podcast, and they talked about someone who had inadvertently flew through a um, entered a um, Oh, Bravo. Bravo. Yeah, yeah. The, the right, the and, and Bravo. didn't realize that the uh, the volume on the radio was all the way down. So, um, yeah, there was some confusion there. And uh, with the distraction, he ended up mm-hmm. flying in the Bravo. Oopsie. Yeah, Oopsie. it happens to the best of us. Yeah. All right. Well, if it doesn't Very seem good. right, it's usually operator error first. So check it all that. It usually is. Usually, yeah. yeah. And if you find a fighter on your wing, it's definitely operator. Uh, yeah, you're really screwed. Up. <laughs> yeah, I like this from Jen. Oh, hold on. Uh, Jennifer. I got the right one there. Plan a page. <laughs> Captain over. <laughs> to the white white phone. Yeah. White courtesy phone. Yeah. Oh, no, that be so Not cool. the red phone, the white phone. And well, I would Can you make say, sure you record it for please us? Do. Yeah. Please and do. probably 95% of the people in the terminal will have no idea. It'll just go. Yeah, but we'll oh, know. we will. We'll, we'll know. Yes. Yes. Awesome. All righty. Well, I know we haven't knocked out too much feedback, but that's okay. We'll get to you eventually, um, including on part two. We'll knock out some more. But in the meantime, I think it's best that we move on over to the best part of the show, which, of course, is this week's installment of the old Pilot's Plane Tales. And this one is entitled RAF Form 14, <laughs> RAF Form 414, Volume 
seven. The old pilots playing tales. RAF form four one four, volume seven. When we chatted last, I had just completed my first year on number forty-three F Squadron, flying the F four Phantom FG one. I'd been operational for about six months, but was still one of the most junior pilots on the squadron. But at least I was now being tolerated rather than completely ignored. The year had taken a bit of a funny turn when the RAF decided to resurface the main runway at our base, RAF Lucas. This required us to move out for a while. In our case, to the home of the Kipper Fleet, known in some places as the Nimrod Base at RAF Kinloss. It was even more to the north than Lucas, and a place where, in the summer, the sun didn't really set, it just bobbled along the horizon. The Kipper Fleet, nickname of the Maritime Patrol Nimrod Squadrons, was well earned since they had spent the preceding few years flying surveillance sorties over Iceland's disputed fishing grounds, keeping an eye on the welfare of British trawlers. But most of the time they were engaged in wacky stuff like anti-submarine patrols and keeping an eye on the Soviet Navy. Kinloss was near the metropolis known as Elgin, population a little less than 20,000, which boasted a few pubs, a curry house and several golf courses. Our families were left several hundred miles to the south of us, back at our runwayless base, so the boss organised us into shifts of two weeks on, one week off, so that we could get home for a break and some nuptials. From up at Kinloss, we covered the responsibility of Northern Quick Reaction Alert all on our own, which was quite a drain, but also meant plenty of Soviet action. I quickly achieved the required number of QRA intercepts to qualify for the lovely 10-bear badge. The variety of flying was fantastic, including such jollies as a deployment to Riga in Viking country, Norway, to work with the Norwegian Air Force. Nine days of lovely weather, fighting their F-5 freedom fighters in air-to-air combat. It was great. We could outshoot the F-5, having all aspect radar-guided missiles, but if we got into a dogfight, things were considerably trickier. The F-5 had a tiny frontal area, so if it pointed at you, it could disappear like it had a cloaking device. Even if you could keep it in sight, a momentary glance into the cockpit to flick a switch, and the next time you saw it was when it got into your shorts. The day's flying would conclude with a meal in the mess at around 4pm, and I learned why the more experienced amongst us would hum that wartime favourite of the forces sung by Vera Lynn. We had new words for it. While meet again, don't know where, don't know when. But we'll get well meet again some sunny day.
The RAF kindly decided that we should be fed more in line with our normal practice, so with our pockets lined with Her Majesty's gold, we would head out each night for an evening in Crapfoss, I kid you not, or up to Oslo. Reindeer steaks proved to be a great substitute for whale blubber. Our nine days in Scandahooligan heaven, where the tanned blonde girls walk around clean wing and showing clear burn-through, and we were back to Bonnie, Scotland, for more tedious missions. We often worked with our venerable Shackleton airborne early warning aircraft, which were parked, gently dripping oil, at the nearby station of Lossiemouth, and I see that I did a mission intercepting a visiting Canadian CP-107 Argus maritime patrol aircraft. Based on the old Bristol Britannia that my father flew, the Argus replaced the Canadian's earlier Lancasters and Lockheed P-2 Neptune maritime aircraft. Looking back on it, it seems like I was taking part in a gathering of vintage aircraft. A couple of days after saying hello to the Canadian Air Force, I was out over the Atlantic on a long QRA mission, when the two Bear Deltas I was escorting, with my jolly flight commander, Bertie, in the back seat, started descending down towards the ocean. We were several hundred miles west of Scotland, when the Soviets broke through the overcast cloud, and we saw that the Bears were targeting some Navy ships. On closer inspection, they turned out to be three Canadian frigates, likely steaming to join a NATO fleet that was holding an exercise near Scotland. Indeed, the next few days were spent on long three-hour-plus missions for Exercise Ocean Safari, defending a bunch of sailors somewhere. It's sometimes hard to recall exactly what these exercises were for, but one rings a bell— Exercise Cavalcade Number one group was part of Bomber Command, and their Vulcan V-bombers used to take part in a test of the UK's air defence capabilities by making mass attacks from high level. Scrambled to intercept the incoming horde of flying flat irons, I could see dozens of vapour trails heading in our direction, way up in the stratosphere. We dragged ourselves up to height and then pooped off a few sparrows, taking out the leaders before scooting around the back to finish the survivors off with sidewinders. I remember that we were playing missile expenditure, in that we could only claim a realistic number of kills consistent with the number of missiles we would carry. I remember getting in behind this last Vulcan, with my one imaginary sidewinder left on my wing. Those early winders had no flare rejection capability, so the seeker head could be easily decoyed by a flare dropped by the target. The Vulcan's red steer rear radar must have picked us up, because as I swung behind their wing line, the crew started dropping flares. I sat a couple of miles back, waiting for a suitable gap between drops, but out they came, one every second. After watching a few dozen, I thought that I'd just wait for him to run out. It became a contest between my fuel state and his stock of flares. He won, and I left him to it as I dived for home. 
As I departed the play area, I could still see those little drops of sunshine popping out of his backside, one after the other, in my rear vision mirrors. The summer wound down. It happens early in Scotland. Autumn came and went before we heard that our new runway at Lucas was finished. So on the 18th of December 1979, with wee Stevie in the back, I tucked the gear up into the wheel whales, and after doing a few final intercepts against the kipper fleet, turned and headed for our real home, back in time for Christmas with our families. It had been fun, if a little expensive, what with the repairs to the bar and the restocking of their goldfish pond. The new year, however, started with some exciting news. Sky Flash. The Skyflash was a British version of the American AIM-7 Sparrow radar-guided missile. The Sparrow's original conical scanning seeker head had been replaced by a Marconi inverse monopulse seeker. This seeker was more accurate, harder to jam and better at detecting low-altitude targets. Built by British Aerospace, the Skyflash's increase in accuracy meant that we were able to forego the enlarged U.S. warhead that was the upgrade given to the U.S. missiles to counter the ageing Sparrow's problems. Other changes were made for Skyflash, which included a new Thorn EMI active radar fuse, better electronics, more efficient control services and an improved rocket motor. The U.S. Navy looked at ordering this much-improved missile, but in the end they took the later-developed monopulse-equipped AIM-7 Mike. Part of the trials for this new missile included test firings at extremes of the envelope. Enter Flying Officer Anderson and Operation Granular. The squadron were given an attack profile to fly, and off we all went to practice. The aim was to get to about 45,000 feet, doing Mach 1.3. Our target would be up at 55,000 feet, doing Mach 2. It was fairly easy to get the F-4 up to very high altitudes and or high Mach numbers, but it took a little while. It wasn't as if we had actual rockets for engines. The intercept we were practising was going to start at about 100 miles away, and we needed to fire at around 20 miles. We would have more than 30 miles a minute of closure, so had only two and a half minutes to find the target, sort out the intercept geometry, accelerate and climb the Phantom into a firing position, lock the radar and then pitch up to launch this new missile. We practised in the simulator, we practised in the air against our buddies all through early January, until we had things down pat. As the firing dates came closer, Tony and I were told that we would get one of the precious firings, my first live missile. Come the day, the range was activated, an enormous area of the North Sea, west of Scotland, sticking out into the Atlantic Ocean. Our target was a British-built version of the Beechcraft Model 1072 AQM-37 air-launched high-altitude supersonic target drone called the Stiletto. It was to be launched by a venerable old Canberra who would be at the far end of the range pointing at Scotland. 
After firing it, he was going to beetle away as fast as his little legs could carry him, and hopefully no other aircraft would get lost that day. I found it funny that the liquid-oxygen-hydrogen mix of the rocket motor on this amazing drone was built by Harley-Davidson. I'd have loved to have seen one appear at the great Harley meet at Sturgis. Come the day, I was more than excited. I hadn't slept much, and there was a lot to do. I was leading a four-ship of phantoms, consisting of the primary firer, me, the secondary firer, who would accompany me down the range in case at the last minute we had a radar problem, a tertiary firer, who would be an airborne spare and remain with the tanker at the start of the run, and a camera chase, who would film the firing through the gunsight camera. My great friend Peter had attempted a firing earlier, but a fault in the stiletto's autopilot caused it to descend down from its target altitude. Nobody knew exactly what was going on, but they couldn't see the drone where it was expected to be. Then Peter saw an orange flash doing Mach 2 go right between him and the secondary firer, who was a mile abeam him, and just over the top of the chase aircraft. Now that caused a few raised eyebrows. Tony and I walked out to X-Ray Victor 571, the boss's jet, given the letter Alpha, and walked around examining the shiny Skyflash missile. It cost a cool quarter of a million pounds sterling. That's about 1.1 million in today's money. At the cost of flying four Phantoms, a Victor tanker, the Canberra and the Stiletto, it was going to be an expensive day for the taxpayer and a nervous one for me. We launched on time and climbed up into the clear blue, arriving at the range on time. We all topped up from the tanker and set up a combat air patrol race track, waiting for the word. I'd been given a fancy voice recorder that attached to my helmet pigtail so that we could play back our intercom and radio chatter for the debrief. I turned it on, something I would come to regret. The Canberra piped up on frequency, confirmed that the range was clear and that we were ready. Almost before we knew it, they had launched, and the game was afoot. Ben Becula, the RAF radar unit near us, and nicknamed Ben Becula, gave us a vector off the cap. We did our attack checks, and I started the acceleration. The seconds were quickly counting down, and I was concentrating on flying the acceleration profile as smoothly as I could, whilst Tony narrowed his radar beam to get the earliest detection he could. I climbed in full reheat to over 40,000 feet and then gently bunted over into a descent to get about 1.6 mag. I looked at the radar and where I usually saw a target, there was nothing. But with such high closure rates, the target would be right at the top of the pulse Doppler display. Speed in hand, I began to climb again and Tony was trying to grab a radar lock. The first attempt looked like a false lock and it broke, so he tried again. He was late calling the lock, and the secondary firer wanted a muscle in, but then he had it, and it all looked good. The target range was coming down the scope like nothing I'd seen before, then it was time. I put the master arm on, pitched to centre the firing dot, which gave the missile the best geometry, and called, firing, firing, now. 
Pulling the trigger, I waited, and with my mind going at a hundred miles an hour, nothing seemed to happen. Then there was a clunk and a roar like an express train hurtling through a station only inches from your nose. I could see the faint trail of the stiletto's rocket about fifteen miles away and up in the blue, but then a steaming great white telegraph pole blasted out from underneath my phantom and hammered up towards the target. The tension and excitement exploded out of me, and I reeled out a line of never-to-be-repeated expletives interspersed with bellows of exhilaration as I watched the two trails close, and within a few seconds it was all over. I, however, was still babbling like an excited schoolgirl, and I think that Tony, who had had the hard job, was just relieved that he'd managed to get a radar lock on a target that was coming down the scope like a scalded cat. We saved the aircraft up and went back to the tanker to pick up our number four and headed for home. When I climbed out of the aircraft, the armourer who met us presented me with a handful of treasure from inside the semi-recessed missile housing. The missile firing lead, the data plug that transfers target information from the radar to the missile, and the two cartridges that fire the plungers which push the missile clear of the aircraft's belly, treasures I have to this day. I swaggered into the debriefing like a World War II fighter race and sat down in pride of place amongst the British aerospace missile experts, our weapons instructors, the rest of the formation and a few senior VIPs from Strike Command who were very interested to find out how this new missile was faring. The missile experts looked glum. We're sorry to say that the telemetry from the missile failed, so we have no way to tell how successful the guidance was and how close aboard the missile came. The telemetry he was referring to was an electronics package that sat in the missile in place of the warhead and through a data link transmitted all the parameters of the missile's flight. Not to worry, he said, we should get an idea from your commentary on the missile's flight path. And with that, he put the little cassette from my intercom recorder into a player and pressed a button. As the sounds of my whoops and screams of excitement filled the room, everyone turned to glare at a young flying officer who was turning a bright shade of scarlet and visibly shrinking in his seat. After a full 30 seconds of nonsensical babbling had gone by, some merciful chap pressed the stop button and blessed silence returned. I thought I was lucky that I was still at such a low rank that they could only reduce me by one level to be back at the bottom. <laughs> Great story. <laughs> Thank you. I like that one very much, yes. Uh, it's very kind. It's slightly light-hearted for a change. No, no one died. Yes. I know. What's uh, wrong with this picture? Absolutely. No, actually, that was that was indeed one of the most exciting moments of my life, which <laughs> turned into one of the most embarrassing. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I took took me an awful long time to live that down. I'm afraid, but there oh, you go. I'm That's sure life. Did I'm sure it did. Makes for a great story now, though. We appreciate. No, it, it does exactly right. One to dine out on. You're quite right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always enjoy all those uh, entries in your RAF form 14. In this case, volume seven. Great stories. Sadly, many years to go, so uh, there'll be a few more to come, I suspect. Ah, good. Oh, really? Yes. <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, mixed, I'm excited about it. Uh, mixed uh, reception there. Uh, uh, I'm just no. kidding. I, I, <laughs> uh, all right. And I do apologize. I don't know what that weird noise was in the, in the middle of that. Um, but, of course, the audio-only version will have the pristine copy of the uh, of the tale. So perfect. Absolutely. I'm sure it will. And All right. chapters will be there available as well eventually. Absolutely. Excellent. Those are always uh, fun with all the accompanying uh, in case Cheers. we weren't able to uh, see the uh, video version. And so uh, yeah, great. Well, uh, it's that time that we uh, come to the end of episode 441 part one and we go ahead and shut it down and then the next voices you'll hear hopefully will be uh, mine introducing uh, miami rick for part two Very so, good. au revoir cheers y'all hi everybody Hey, before we get on with part two of this episode, 441, I would like to apologize. And I'm apologizing for the not quite up to the APG standards for audio quality that the first part of the show, uh, the first two thirds of this week's show has um, exhibited. Uh, I was in a rush before we started recording part one yesterday and I screwed up the audio routings, the audio routing table. And, um, so I had to use our backup recording, which is the, uh, taking the audio from the video, uh, off of uh, Streamyard slash YouTube. And it's, it's not as high a quality, uh, as I'd like, and as you all are accustomed. And, uh, so I just wanted to let you know that, um, I screwed up, uh, the, the host of the show, me, Jeff, and uh, I hope I don't do it again because it's really created a lot of extra work for me to try to fix the rather poor audio I had to work with uh, to make it sound somewhat decent. So there you go. Just wanted to let you know it wasn't your ears telling you that something is wrong. Uh, Jeff has not had a stroke, at least not yet. And uh, yeah, that's that's what's going on here. So Part two is coming up right now, and I'm hoping that the quality will be a lot better this time around. Thank you, and listen on. Whoa, you hear that music? You know what that means? That's the intro music for Miami Rick. Let's see, from his mobile studio in the Republic of Korea, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain. It's Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. Coming at you from the future, the other side of the international dateline. Oh, that's I'm right. Very, very happy to be here. What's the uh, future look? It, uh, it's bright, as they say. Bright, but windy. But it's yeah, a little, 
So, yeah. So tell us where you are. I mean, I said the Republic of Korea, but where exactly? I am in, uh, it's called Incheon. It's uh, just to the west of great, the greater Seoul area, uh, the capital of, uh, of Korea here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, this is called the Oakwood Towers, the tallest uh, building in the uh, Korean Republic. Oh, uh, Korean, wanna, sorry, Korean, uh, Korean uh, Peninsula. Do you want to be in the tallest building when a hurricane comes? Uh, well, you know what I've been in. The I mean, tallest a typhoon. Building. I'm sorry, typhoon. Well, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, uh, this thing, uh, this thing is uh, pretty, pretty uh, sturdily uh, constructed. So uh, I feel, I feel quite safe. And the the building itself is it's, it's very aerodynamic in its line. Oh. So uh, it, it it handles uh, it handles winds uh, very well. Okay. Well, so. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned that you were, uh, when we recorded part one yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. we, you were flying and, uh, between what Anchorage and, uh, Incheon. Yeah. Yeah. From, uh, from Anchorage to Incheon, it was uh, a little over eight hours. It's not too bad, but it's one of those things where, where the, uh, the time difference between, uh, Anchorage and Incheon, uh, even though the, 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 the flight itself is only eight hours, the time difference is 17 hours because you go across the international dateline. And uh, it's one of those deals where uh, you you know you fly in uh, westbound. It's uh, it's 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 daytime the whole time. You know it's uh, it's it's really it's it's one of those things that gets really it's it's <laughs> it takes a little bit a little bit of getting used to. You know sometimes you don't see the 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 sun for you know upwards of fifteen twenty hours. Sometimes you see nothing but sun for twenty hours. So it's uh. Oh, it's, it's, it's one of those deals. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. But uh, it was a good flight. It uh, actually I didn't do the flying myself. I just uh, I just deadheaded. I hitched a ride. On uh, on uh, one of our seven fours, I was the only deadheader on there, so it was uh, a lot of room. I had one of the bunks to myself. I had a nice little nap, caught up on a little bit of uh, reading, and uh, you know, eight hours later, I was here. A little bit windy. The uh, uh, Sean uh, he brought us in yesterday. It was a bit of a workout for him getting us uh, safely on the on the ground, but uh, he did a fantastic job up uh, up with uh, uh, the uh, FO Becca who did a fantastic job as well. So uh, I I was in great hands. He must have done a good job because you're still here. You're still alive. And we're very happy about that. (laughs) What else is new besides uh, just flying all over the world? Um, uh, No. Well, last week I had to go back down to Miami for, uh, can you believe it's been six months since I got uh, typed on this thing again? Wow. Uh, No, I can't. Yeah. I had to go down to Miami and uh, go through recurrent training. So I did a day of recurrent training, which is just your, your basic maneuvers, you know, your, your, um, your, they, a failure of some sort. I had to deal with uh, a really interesting one, by the way, it was a uh, uh, fuel contamination fuel filter on both engines. Um, Ooh. So if you have a, uh, if you have an issue with one fuel filter, it's probably the filter. If you have them, two of them, it's probably the fuel. Fuel, yeah. So uh, I was. I thought, well, let's. Uh, we we just taken off from Seattle. The the scenario was Seattle to uh, Moses Lake, which is pr- pretty much standard what we do. So I looked at what the distance between uh, Seattle, where I was in Seattle, and where I was in Moses Lake, and I thought, well, goes through Seattle. So just told my FO declared emergency, turned back around, and I got the heck out of Dodge. Uh, Three hundred and thirty knots to just about uh, the outer marker there, <laughs> and the wow. instructor actually. Uh, um flamed out both engines um on the flare so uh it worked out it worked so, out so, so there's going to be a movie and a book called uh, uh miracle on puget Sound. miracle exactly miracle right? of, uh, puget, it- except except i made it to the runway so uh oh okay well then it yeah. wasn't a miracle you just do what it everybody was mir- else does 
exactly. Lay on the uh, runway. Yeah. The funny thing is that uh, so so the guy the guy uh, the instructor shuts down uh, flames out both engines on on the on the on the flare, <laughs> and uh, and then nice. he asks if we can uh, if we can taxi off the runway. I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> we don't, we don't have any power. Maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. So, uh, so that was interesting. So I did that, yeah. and then the second day I did uh, um, upset recovery training, which we have to do every year. Uh, so we went to the across the street to the bunk facility where we have our uh, large display system, uh, the LDS sim, which is the seven six with the new big uh, mm-hmm. seven eight seven type screens. And then oh, yeah. you just yank and bank, and uh, you know they put you in uh, uh, unusual attitudes and uh, both, both uh, instrument conditions and uh, visual conditions, and you're supposed to pull out and uh, not overg the aircraft. And it's a uh, it's a uh, it's very very interesting training because it. Uh, it really shows you how to, um, even though the airplane, the simulator obviously can't uh, simulate the G loads on the body, it does a really good job uh, visually because just the visuals are just unbelievable. I think mm-hmm. it's Google Earth, the platform they use. Um, and so when uh, when <laughs> when you're inverted 120 degrees nose down and you see the the the, the ground rushing at coming at you. Uh, it's, 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 it's just your reflex to try to pull out of that as quickly as you can, but you have to keep in mind that, uh, if you do it too, too, uh, I guess aggressively you overdo the aircraft winks come off and mm-hmm. if you, uh, you, you know, you, you find yourself in, in secondary accelerated stall type situation. So, mm-hmm. um, we, uh, we went through that and got recertified and all, but it was, it was good. It was, uh, it was a good time. Excellent. It was a good time. Obviously yeah. you, uh, you did it satisfactorily at least. Yeah, they uh, they uh, re- they renewed my contract for another six months. So I Excellent. Think, uh, I think we'll be good. Good to go. Well, I'm good to go on the medical uh, front. Uh, just had my FAA first class physical a couple of weeks ago, ah, and nice. uh, but I am now not current in any airplane or any. Uh, my landing currency is expired, and my currency on any airplane has expired. So, is that is that the first time your career has ever happened? Yep, it is. Oh wow. The first time I've been off for what four months? Uh, mostly three? No, only th- a little over three months now. But by the time yeah. I actually get in, back into a real airplane and you know flying it, it'll probably be four or five months. So right, right. Anyway, yeah. But that's I hear it. I hear it's like riding a bike; it comes right back. That's what they say. Yeah. So. Except for it's a lot bigger and it has wings and engines exactly. and it's stuff harder like to put uh, you know baseball cars in the spokes. Really, nothing like riding a bike at all. When you think about it. <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's good. Uh, glad to have you here with us for part two, Rick. And uh, I think we should uh, move on over to cover a couple of items in the news that we uh, kind of left over for you and I to go over. So sure. let me head over here to, unless there was something else you wanted to add about what's been happening with you. Oh, I think we're, uh, we're hitting, let's hit the news. Okay. Um, Omni Air International Boeing 767 suffers main landing gear collapse during landing at Bucharest Airport. And uh, Liz, we have uh, some video if you want to play that. And I think we'll still be able to talk over the top. Yeah, we do. Our, our microphones are still unmuted, Rick. So we're watching the uh, yep. airplane coming in at Bucharest, Romania. And I just want to point out there's a big giant IKEA store <laughs> right yeah. in the background. Yeah. And that was, in Romania, yeah, actually, uh, yep. It uh, seems like they like to locate those things around airports. Anyway, here's this 767-300ER touching down. It looks like a nice, easy touchdown. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh, looks like it's leaning a little bit to the left, kind of like that FedEx 767 did at uh, LAX, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 
and uh, they're still sliding. It looks like they're doing a good job of keeping it um, going down the runway, as far as I can determine from this angle. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so happy that somebody was actually taking video of this because obviously they didn't know that this was going to happen. Yeah, I mean you're 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 on video now, twenty four seven. You can't get away from it. That is true. Know? That is true. Everyone's and so it comes camera. sliding to a stop there. And then we have some um, aftermath. Sorry. Oh, sorry. That was me. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. That's okay. We're going uh, to see it again. We're going to see it. Liz said, you know, I don't think you did a good enough job of covering <laughs> everything that was happening in the video. I want to see the Ikea again. <laughs> she, Liz says she wanted to see the Ikea store again. So there you go. We get to see the Ikea store again. And yeah. the airplane is touching down nice and softly. I'll let Rick do yeah. kind of play-by-play here. No, it was a perfect touchdown. And uh, the difference between this touchdown and the FedEx one is that this one obviously was supposed to be a normal touchdown. So every, so the uh, you know, the speed brakes were armed, uh, reversers were uh, deployed normally, everything was 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 normal. Um, and uh, if you notice, one of the things I noticed here is that when the when the when the left gear failed, uh, the nose came up. Mm-hmm. Which didn't happen on the on the on the FedEx oh, uh, incident. Good point. Good point. You know, because yep. you know that's got to it's got to do. I guess I imagine because the spoilers are are deployed and the the position of the, spo- the spoilers along the court of the wing do tend to give you a nose up moment. So um, so, so when that when that happened, we were uh, watching uh, some video now, and it, I see now what happened. It looks like a forklift approached the airplane and dismantled the left main landing gear of this jet before they took off. Now, wait a minute. This must be after the fact. Never mind. I think this is the aftermath. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Never mind. They're, they're cleaning. I know that. Uh, there's, there. there's, there's your problem. <laughs> there's your problem right there. <laughs> it's going to be an easy investigation. Um, I know. So, uh, yeah. So there we go. Um, you can go ahead and kill the video now, uh, Liz. Uh, and we do have some other um, photos uh in the uh, over uh, regular overlays, there there's a picture, uh, Rick, of the um, the I guess it's the Trunnion that uh, yeah, well, no, no, I'm not so sure. the, the, the the Trunnion bolt itself. I don't know what a Trunnion is, is uh, actually. Yeah, the Trunnion, <laughs> it's 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 in the same uh, you know ballpark of the, of the encabulator. But the Trunnion bolt itself is the uh, is is the bolt that uh, attaches the landing gear where where the landing gear pivots to the wing spar. So that's the Trunnion bolt. I think what happened here and what I'm hearing, it's uh, it, it looks to me and oh, well, obviously we're going to have to wait for the investigation to, to, to wrap up on all that. But it, it looks to me like there's some kind of fatigue um, cracking right mm-hmm. at the uh, oleo strut because it's a very clean, you know, cut. It's a very clean break there mm-hmm. um, right where the oleo strut goes into the main leg there. Um because as we as we saw, it looked to me like the the the, the touchdown was was very very smooth. You know, mm-hmm. it's nothing nothing uh, nothing too out of the ordinary there. Yep. Um, so uh, I guess we're just gonna have to wait to see what the investigation says. But yep. uh, I'm glad to see that. Uh, I, I don't think anybody was hurt. No, I don't think so. Um, you know, so these guys uh, these guys did a fantastic job. Great job, and you can see how oh, yeah. far in that photo uh, that Liz has up. Um, how far to the left that thing is listing. Um, did a really nice job. Oh yeah, and it was right on center line too. So uh, yeah, which uh, it's it's a hard thing to do when you have uh, one side of the aircraft dragging. So uh, yep, a fantastic job. It says emergency slides were used to evacuate the eighty passengers from the aircraft. I think eighty passengers and fifteen. Uh, yeah, you can you can kill the the mm-hmm. video or the uh, just showing the slides again. Oh okay. 
Those are the slides, Lou says. Mm. Um, just in case you didn't know what a slide looked like, that's what they look like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Brad is asking is, if, if uh, that would be a write-off. That'd be kind of hard to tell at this point. Uh, I guess the insurance companies are going to have to get involved and, and do an assessment um, and, uh, and and go from there. Uh, you know, it's all dollars and cents. If the, if, the, if the cost is more than the benefit, then I guess they'll write it off. Uh, although, um, seven sixes are very hard to come by these days, and they're very, very popular airplanes, both for uh, both for cargo and for passengers, because uh, it's just the right size. It's not too big. It's not too small. Um, you can fly, you know, extended uh, twin engine operation procedures with them. You know, 180 minute ETOPS, um, you know, long distances over the ocean. Um, so they're 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 a hot commodity right now. So I it's, imagine they're going to try to they're going to try to you know save it. It's right sized for COVID, I'd say. Um, oh yeah. So uh, the airplane was delivered in January of 1996. So it's uh, 24 years, eight months old. So mm. it's not a spring chicken, but as Rick said, it may not be scrapped if it's still, you know, if they can get it repaired, um, you know, if effectively and and cost efficiently, they'll probably. Get and I tell you, out. I mean, we, we've I've seen that when we've seen a couple of uh, a couple of seven six incidents uh, in the last. Uh, year or two where you've actually had uh, uh, fuselage issues because of heart landings and stuff like that. And that is certainly more, I would imagine more, well, actually I know, I know for a fact because uh, it's, it's harder to, uh, to fix a fuselage issue because of the structural integrity of the fuselage itself versus a scra uh, scraped uh, engine pod and a scraped uh, wingtip. Uh, it's just, you just do a, a, a gear change and, uh, and, you know, just uh, dust the plane off and, uh, go back go back at it again so this i imagine is, it's gonna be fine again this is the reason why i love doing this show with rick because he just made a perfect segue talking about the importance of uh, fuselage integrity to the next item in our news boeing woes whoa mount with manufacturing defect found in dreamliners this is from bloomberg Boeing Company grounded eight of its 787 Dreamliner jets for inspection and repair after finding two manufacturing flaws that together could compromise the structural integrity of the aircraft. The distinct issues involve the composite barrel sections at the rear of the wide-body plane, which are melded together at a Boeing plant in South Carolina. Together, the flaws caused the fuselage sections to fall short of the plane maker's standards for withstanding stress, creating a risk of in-flight failure, which I can assure mm -hmm. you is not a good thing. Nope. Boeing has found that the rest of the global Dreamliner fleet meets those standards, known as limited load capability, a person familiar with the matter said. However, Boeing is analyzing data to determine whether it needs to take further action, such as recommending inspections of other Dreamliners in use, said the person, who asked not to be identified as the matter is confidential. We are taking the appropriate steps to resolve these issues and prevent them from happening again, Boeing said by email. The company said it has fully de uh, briefed the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration and is conducting a thorough review into the root cause and added, just get off our backs, man. No, he didn't. They didn't say that, actually. Uh, Air Canada, United Air Holdings, and Singapore Airlines said they each had one of the affected planes. United said its Dreamliner has been in service before the airline was notified by Boeing. Ooh, had been in service. Oh, there was flying around. Oh. Um, but uh, I guess they're all grounded now, and uh, they're going to see what they need to do to fix them. But this is a little bit more complicated because these are composite structures we're talking about here. Exactly and I guess they right. have some kind of a, a system, a computer robot system that kind of um, 
looks at you know when they mate these two fuselage sections together and it's all carbon fiber carbon fiber and carbon composite tape laid down by giant robots and then Mm -hmm. this thing analyzes whether or not there are any little gaps and then it creates these shims that uh, are inserted uh, in the appropriate places and then they meld the thing together and then it has its structural integrity but apparently on eight of these jets that that was a problem and also the finish of the um, carbon composite uh, material was a little bit rough and i guess when you have both of these cases where you have that rough surface and you have the shims that aren't quite right uh, Right. you have a situation where you're not going to meet the standard now this being south carolina and it being uh what united air canada and singapore i wonder if they're just uh, this applies to dash 10 models only because i know that uh, the dash 10 is uh, produced down in uh, south carolina i used to uh-huh. fly the Dreamlifter down in south carolina quite a bit with oh. uh fuselage uh, fuselage uh sections out of uh italy actually and it was uh it was all for dash 10s i wonder if this applies to the dash 10 only so they don't uh, do the nine uh, there or the eight or whatever it is, the, the original one. No, the, the the eight and the nine, the eight and mm-hmm. the nine are uh, are up in Seattle. Up okay, in, uh, up in, uh, well, it makes sense. Uh, then. Yeah. Probably the the dash tens, I guess. Yeah. I believe as of now, as of now, it's only the dash ten. I'm sure somebody's going to correct me and get yeah. above that fifty percent, which is you know ever so important. Say fifty percent, but fifty uh, percent. Thank you. So, uh, yep. But right. uh, I think the dash ten is uh, the only one that's uh, produced down there. Okay. Very good. Yeah. And they're talking about they're talking about like moving all um, construction and putting together uh, the seven eighty seven Dreamliner in that uh, South Carolina facility, I believe. Although that's something that's in in progress right now because the people that are working in Washington State are not really happy about that. Yeah, I think there's, and I remember when that uh, when that plant in uh, in South Carolina opened up, it was a huge. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, you know pushback and blowback, and you know just yep. a lot of fighting between the unions, and uh, it, it's always it always goes beyond beyond just the just the operation and the building of the airplane itself. There's a lot of uh, yep. interests here and there that have to be satisfied. So. Politics and union stuff, it uh, gets you know uh, how it goes. Gets kind of crazy. There, okay, muy loco. Yes. Absolutely. All right. Well, we've already played this once on uh, today's show, but you know what? We're going to do it again for for good measure. Time for feedback. Yes. Bring it on. Captain. Incoming message. Coming at you, baby. All right. right. We're going to start with um, Ham Radio Jim 11. Hello there, crew. Some questions regarding the FedEx 767. Oh, I didn't realize it was actually our first feedback item. We'll definitely be getting to this one on today's show. Um, Some questions regarding the FedEx 767 freighter incident discussion in APG 439. I wonder if the inertial reels or inertia reels need to be a minimum height off the ground for their clutches to operate properly. I heard that the main door L1 was closer to the ground than usual. I think actually it was further, wasn't it? It was further away because it was yeah. the left. Oh, it was, let me see here. So the, what was the left gear that didn't come down? Yeah. No, it was actually Oh, I guess it would be ground. closer, yeah. Closer to the ground, yeah. Never mind. Uh, due to the class main gear on the port side. Yeah, disregard that. I'll, t- I'll cut that out mm-hmm. in uh, post editing. No, I won't. I'll leave that in there just so the, everybody can see what an idiot I am. Um, maybe this is why the pilots went for the knotted ropes out of the cockpit window, or is this door so close to the engine that scraped along the concrete that fire was a possibility there? Could a checklist have the answer? So sad that a pilot got injured. There you go. What do you What do you think? Well, the 
No, I don't. I, that's not an issue at all. Actually, in fact, when you pull the reel out, um, the there's a little bit of, uh, of slack on it. But um, but uh, the second you go past, I used to know the number by art. Actually, so you go past two or two and a half feet, you actually get resistance because if the if the resistance of the reel comes in too late, then as you jump out the door. Um, you'd basically be, you know, free falling for a first couple of feet. And it'd be really hard for you to hang on once that tension actually engages and you could very well let go and fall off. So the transition from no load to load has to be very, very smooth for it to work. So okay. no, the, uh, that, that's not an issue whatsoever. It, it really did surprise me that, uh, that, uh, they used, uh, the, uh, the, the ropes, uh, to get out, uh, because it's, I mean, it's, it's a lot harder to go down those ropes because first you have to, well, the, the knots are maybe about uh, this big around or well, mm-hmm. about, you know, five, five, six, five, six inches around. And they're at, at about that, a that's a interval. foot, Rick. That's a foot. Exactly. So you hang on to those and you climb down. But for that, you need a lot of a lot of um, a lot of upper body strength. Whereas with these reels, you just hang on. And they just you know gently lower you down. So I don't, mm-hmm. uh, I don't, I don't know what the what the issue was there. And I, was, I don't. I mean, I, the, the airplane wasn't on fire. You know, mm-hmm. everything was fine. Yeah, everybody yeah. knew that uh, that everybody was waiting for the plane. Though all the all the trucks were called out, and mm-hmm. uh, I really don't see a reason to you know rush and evacuate as quickly as it did. I thought it was. Oh, I, mean, I don't know. Too. Yeah, I, you know, I, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But uh, right. that's just my it's just my observation. Yeah, it'd be great to be able to like talk to them and see, you know, what what made you decide to do that instead of going, you know, out L one. Um, another thing, yeah. um, <laughs> and actually this 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 happened to me once. Uh, when the airplane comes out of heavy maintenance, one of the first things you have to do is you go and look at where the rope is stowed, and you make sure that the rope is actually attached. To the airplane oh that would be so, a bad thing you, you know yeah. so you, uh, you <laughs> want to make sure it's attached because it'd be, it's a long way down you need so, to have uh, uh some resistance there to keep from hitting the bit. ground at uh what 30 miles an hour or whatever it is <laughs> yeah we'll see so, you know it's uh 30 foot uh, feet per second per second so uh yeah whatever that is fall. do the math out there yeah. grab exactly. your calculators <laughs> be anyway uh, yeah, there will be a test later, Liz said. Okay, uh, so finally, Ham Radio Jim uh, says, you know, uh, that's what I like about APG. It stimulates my brain cells and also my funny bone. <laughs> You're still <laughs> my main podcast to while away these COVID-19 days. Again, 7-3 from Ham Radio Jim, Whiskey 2, November Sierra Foxtrot. Thank you, sir. It's always good to hear from Ham Radio Jim. Yes, sir. 7-3, Jim. 7-3. All right. Hey, Stefan uh, from Germany sent us some audio feedback. So let's hear what he has to say to us. Hello, Captain Jeff. Hello, whole APG team. This is Stefan from Hamburg, Germany calling, and I'd like to give you some feedback, some additional feedback to the question of Paul, episode 437, shipping times of packages. I know Tillman from Berlin already answered some question. I'd like to add to this one that I recently got a package from New York and it only took 10 days to arrive in Hamburg. But on the first, in the first uh, 437 episode, uh, Dr. Steph mentioned that 
she got the impression that uh, packages from China, because of their double wrapping in plastic, they're very rarely and seldom getting inspected by customs. Well, there might be a reason behind that. Well, at least it is in Europe. In Europe, we do have the regulation that every shipping below 22 euro is tax-free when it comes from China and other countries from overseas. I think it is something like developing countries or something, which might be not quite appropriate anymore for China. That's why the regulation is changing. From next year on, every package from China is affected by custom regulation um, anyhow, no matter what kind of price or what value this package has. So maybe in America there are some similar similar regulations regarding packages from overseas, especially from China, about tax and customs. I added some link in the show note. But coming back to the aviation topic, um, I think the uh, cargo company DHL, uh, that's the way they started out in the early 70s by providing uh, shipping with packages together with all the paperwork necessary for customs. I put some link in the uh, in the mail as well uh, reflecting that. So that's from my side. Um, uh, perhaps you remember I'm flying the A380. The, th the sad thing is that uh, my company decided to not fly this aircraft for at least two years if not longer depending on the numbers of the passengers and the IATA says or calculates that air traffic won't be up until 2024 so maybe my aircraft will be on the ground for four years altogether and some people maybe also a little bit myself are saying that this aircraft isn't flying at all anymore in Germany. Very sad news but um, well you're doing a great job. Keep on the show. Lots of tailwind. Of course, not during the landing time. And uh, big also thanks for, towards Liz for picking up this email out of the spam folder. Thanks. <laughs> out of the spam folder. <laughs> <laughs> Picked it out. Liz saved that one. Nice. I like it. <laughs> yes, a good save. So what I'm, I wish that he'd given us a little bit. More. So what does that mean? I wonder while he is, while the airplane is basically grounded for a while. I mean, is he in the kind of same situation I'm in, or is he going to be just like sitting home for a couple of years? Or does he get paid? I don't know. Will he transfer? You know, I don't, to I don't know. Airplane? I don't know how it works with uh, with the European pilots. Actually, it'd yeah. be kind of nice to kind of nice to hear. Is it is it the same uh, uh, system as us, where you know it's, uh, you have a minimum guarantee per month, and then uh, you know. get your hourly rate based on your position and your seniority, or I don't know. It'd be interesting to be interesting to know that, but um, yeah. yeah, it uh, it's it's just it's it's crazy how uh, you know uh, Airbus put all their uh, all their uh, all their eggs in the uh, you know large capacity jets where uh, that was actually you know, it was working out until this whole debacle happened and yep. uh, you know. But uh, I'm I'm sure the better times are ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, uh, this is this is just this is just uh this is just but a hiccup in time, and uh, things will go back to normal. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully he's making well. good use of his time off, and I hope yeah. that he's still getting paid some sort of salary. And uh, thank you very much for the explanation about the uh, China customs in the EU. And we have a link mm -hmm. that he provided for us. We'll put that in the show notes. And also, there's a link about the origins of DHL cargo, the big yeah. yellow, bright yellow airplanes. 
And, um, it was three guys, I think it was, right? It was a Delcy, Hillbloom, and a Lynn. That's yeah. A DHL stamp no idea. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. That, actually, I'm know. sure you're right, though. <laughs> I trust you. <laughs> I trust that you're right. Um, and uh, by the way, um, if you are if looking at the show notes and or are watching the video, uh, we had a picture of a beautiful 757 and DHL covers with an uh, inset of Stefan uh, w- wearing this very, very good-looking um, face mask. has uh, four stripes on the on the side. There we go. Liz putting that back up for us. And very he nice. said, P.S., the mask is by Yuka Kakso. I'm not sure if that's the way you pronounce that or not. At Y-U-K-I-C-O-X-O. So... That sounds like a sounds like a Twitter ID. So maybe you can yeah, like find handle. information about that uh, mask if you're looking for a mask with four bars or three bars on it. Pretty cool looking. All right, I get one with five bars. Five bars, yeah. You got to have five yeah, bars well, if you're flying with, a 380. When I, when I have to fly with another captain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, Stefan. And by the way, thank you again for that wonderful uh, that wonderful gin that. Uh, you sent me that was a wonderful gift and it's all gone but one of these days nice. i'm going to make it to uh, your neck of the woods in hamburg and uh, get some more of that stuff nice okay uh chris uh sent in some feedback regarding um the fires and the firefighting um uh, operations um using airplanes uh, specifically the uh, Global Super Tanker 944, which is a big old 747, looks like a 400, that was converted to uh, fire tanker uh, duty. And we have a video that Liz is going to put up there, and we can talk over the video because there's no audio. Um, so look at that beautiful thing, Rick, flying look over. Look at that. Um, not sure exactly where this It's a California fire, I think. And um, so we're, we're watching it uh, from a, a helicopter, I believe, is taking this uh, footage, and it's uh, entering the area. You can see some smoke in the background, and uh, it's about to drop its um, fire retardant. Looks like they've already made a pass, but man, look at all that. It's like 20,000 gallons of fire yeah. retardant that that thing drops. That's amazing. It's interesting. I'm looking at it. It uh, it looks like it's flying around with a uh, with landing flap, and uh, it's uh, the only way. Well, I, I imagine it would have to be land, flying around with that landing flap for it to fly slow enough to uh, make the uh, drop of that fire retardant effective. Um, but the interesting thing about flying with the uh, landing flap is that uh, the gear has to be down, otherwise you have this very very annoying alarm uh, in, in the flight deck telling you that hey, idiot. Your flaps are in landing position, but your gear's not down. So uh, I imagine what they're doing there is they're using the uh, landing gear override switch there to yeah. uh, to silence the the, fa- the 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 gear alarm. And obviously, I'm sure there's there's some kind of procedure and uh, and checklist they have to go through. And I'm, I'm sure that's got to be one of the uh, yeah one of the things that they have to do. Some kind of, of a special modification, probably approved by the FAA and all that jazz. Well, I mean, it's it's just a, it's just a switch that's there. So oh. you have the flap override switch and the gear override switch. Uh, oh. So the flap override switch basically is there to to uh, prevent you f- prevent the system from screaming at you that you don't have landing flap set uh, when you're coming into land. And usually, you use that when your landing flaps twenty, which is uh, the norm when you have an engine issue. 
Okay. So you're not going to go to flap 25 or 30. So you're just going to flap, land flap 20. And part of the checklist says flap override switch on, which does that. And then the gear override switch is right next to that one, which will allow you to be flying around with landing flap, but the gear in the up position. So, uh, so I guess the danger is that when you use that override switch, you got to make sure that you have it in the proper normal position when you are finished with your firefighting activities. Exactly right, which which tells me that there's got to be a very, very thorough checklist to yeah. go into the firefight mode and then getting you out of that firefight mode to go back to normal operation before you go and land. Yep. So. Excellent. Um, he says, I, I'm betting someone may have already sent you this video. No, they didn't. Uh, but it's so breathtaking. She. she I'm she. sorry. She. It's a. It's a she, Chris. Uh, but it's so breathtaking. I thought I would share it anyway. What's happening in California is heartbreaking, but seeing this beautiful plane and very skilled crew at work is amazing. Thanks for all your hard work and good cheer. You guys keep me looking up in these tough times. Stay safe. Stay well. Thank you, Chris, uh, for that. We She's do. in Thanks, the chat. Chris. Oh, okay. She's in the chat. Uh, the live audience. Mm. There she is. Thanks, Chris. Yep, uh, you uh, may have gotten my message. This plane is so beautiful, but my heart goes out to the folks dealing with the fire damage. Yeah, it does. A lot of a lot of hardship uh, that people are enduring these times. Yeah. Um. All right. So, um, those were the three items that we were kind of saving for uh, covering with you. We have about twenty five minutes remaining in our part two. So, why don't we? Switch up to the top there, Rick, to uh, mm-hmm. Aubrey, and he or she, I'm not sure if it's a male or female, says, Aubrey here from Palo Alto, California. I'm an avid simulator pilot and like to fly routes that actual airliners fly. I came across this route of an American Airlines A321neo flying from Phoenix to Reagan National, and then he sent us a link to the um, flight track on FlightAware, and it said it looks as though the cruise altitude was 41,000 feet. However, from Googling around, it seems the service ceiling of the Airbus A320neo family is 39,800 feet. And then he gives us a source uh, to uh, Wikipedia, and I included that. Um, it's 50% bell, and it's also P-bell. a delta P bell. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, then, and then also, you just, just also have to keep in mind the fact that the higher you go, uh, the the higher your angle of attack has to be to provide the aircraft with the lift required to stay at that altitude. And if you increase your angle of attack to increase your lift, your drag exponentially increases, which might, you know, be greater than the amount of thrust you have, which also determines your, 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 your ceiling there. But as, as, as Jeff said, yeah, I don't, I don't think these guys would be flying at uh, above the, uh, the certified ceiling of, uh, of, uh, of the aircraft if that if that was you know in fact the ceiling um i've as you everybody knows here i've never flown an airbus i'd like to keep it that way um and um but i don't know and because of that i don't know what the ceilings are uh yeah. on uh, on these on these uh well how high have you been and we're talking airplane altitude rick just to be clear <laughs> <laughs> so um the highest I've ever flown is forty five thousand feet. That's the hmm. um, that's the ceiling for the seven forty seven. The dash four hundred, um, the, the the dash eight has a forty three thousand one hundred ceiling, as does the seven sixty seven and the triple seven. Um, so forty five thousand is the, the the highest I've been, and the fastest I've flown is a point nine one Mach, and that is uh, just point oh one shy of the point nine two. Uh, MMO on the dash 400. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
that's those are those are my numbers, which are pretty pedestrian <clears throat> compared to some of the company that uh, we have here. Well, I mean, honestly, I think I may have in the T thirty eight been a little bit higher than that. I don't remember exactly how high, and and I'm not sure if the um, uh, what is it called the statute of limitations is um, over yet. So I'm going to say <laughs> that I'm sure that I didn't fly higher than I was supposed to. Um, and I know for sure that I've flown a little bit faster than you. One ride in the T-38 and T-38 training, it's a supersonic trainer, and one ride we yep. get to go purposely above Mach 1. Um, nice. I think it's like up to 1.115 or 1.2, so not not a lot mm-hmm. over Mach 1, just to, so that you, the instructors can show you what the flight controls feel like when you're in supersonic flight. And you know what? Obvious, I mean, um, honestly, it's not really that impressive. You'd think that it'd be a, like a really big deal, but <laughs> it's. Not. I mean, yeah. From what I've seen, really, it's just uh, it's just the Mach meter going to you know going to one point yep. just north of one point oh. So, and then uh, when you talk, you can't hear yourself because you're going so fast that the. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <I'm> just, <laughs> you can still hear yourself talking. Um, I, I, that, see, I see what you did there. I like yeah, the the best part of that uh, ride, though, is that when you start. I think it's that ride. Uh, you get to do an um, unrestricted climb. So normally, you know, when you take off, you're an afterburner, and you have to pull it out of afterburner really really quickly to keep from overspeeding the gear and the flaps and everything else well, when, you, right. when you have a um, unrestricted fly uh, climb clearance you leave it in burner and you go and not like an f-16 or f-15 or f-22 or f-35 like you know these modern jets can almost go straight up like a rocket but it's still pretty it's a pretty impressive um experience i'll have to say that are well, you you're talking do, uh six, 60 70 degrees maybe or yeah and uh and you go through ten thousand feet like that and uh you know you you get up to, to the you know the 20s the mid 20s or so i think um before you pull so you gotta out be, a burner you gotta be right there with the double ding for the for the seat belts right exactly uh, you gotta be right on that double ding for the uh for the passengers yeah, yeah. and uh flight attendants to get up oh wait a minute exactly no that's not that's a different kind of flying isn't it um the uh, other thing is you don't want to leave it in burn. Now, uh, oh, there we go. There, he's back. He's back. Wow, I, I, I kind of, um, I think I may have had a stroke or something. I think it was, but we were going Mach one. <laughs> I was. Oh, you know what it was? I was going. Yeah, I was going faster than the speed of sound. It was. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that's yeah, one of the that. things that happens. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. Um, I have really good internet internet uh, bandwidth at my house now, so that can't be it. Maybe my poor old laptop is telling me, it's screaming out, please, Help. please let me die a nice, peaceful, normal death and buy a new computer, please. I don't know. You said echoing, though, Jeff. Am I echoing? Oh, I know I am, because, uh, hang on, I'm not anymore, I bet. Nope, you're good now. Because uh, I have my microphone on for the clean feed. Okay, so um, anyway, so the uh, the thing I was going to say, I think I left off with something like um, you can't leave it in afterburner because I believe yeah. that if you leave it in afterburner, you only have like fifteen minutes worth of fuel. So yeah. it's going to be yeah, a very short fuel flight. Real quick, exactly. burns a lot. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. It's not about me. It's about service ceilings and Aubrey's wondering what the answer is. We don't know if it was a, a bug in the FlightAware or ADSB, or I'm thinking it was probably one of those things where the airplane itself was was allowed to get up to forty one thousand feet. So that's what I'm going to stick with. That's no, my I think official. So too. 
Uh, in a similar vein, how high is he? Oh, we talked about this. Um, the last part of his uh, or her question. Um, and I'm not sure. About the, in the Mad Dog, the highest I've been is the service ceiling of the Mad Dog, which is only 37,000 feet. Oh, really? 37? Yeah. That's it. Uh-huh. For all the DC-9s and everything else, they're all 37. And, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe Nick can uh, tell us how high the 340 goes. Yeah. Okay. We'll leave it in for Nick, and he can tell us about what his experience is. I'm sure that he's going to tell us a lot higher when he was in the F4 and the F18. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is an interesting beast. And uh, I'm not talking about my stomach. I'm talking about um, something that this article from Jeffrey, by the way, sent ah. this in. And uh, this thing is called an acranoplan or a cranoplan uh, or a something plan, like yeah. that. I'm not sure if that's the way you pronounce it or not. MSN.com called this uh, an airplane, but it's not. It looks like there are certain aspects of this thing that look like an airplane. And then there are certain aspects of it that look like um, a boat or a ship. And technically, the Wikipedia says that uh, the the Russia and the company that made this um, refer to this uh, as as a ship. It's an ocean-going vessel or a sea-going or a water vessel. Um, it's very unusual looking. It's a um, it's a ground effect ship. Exactly and right. It has like short, stubby wings, but looks like a lot of wing area. Uh, there's the top view. Thank you, Liz, uh, where you can look down. And gosh darn, look at that horizontal stabilizer uh, mounted on the vertical oh, yeah. uh, uh, fin. Uh, so that back part of the airplane, I mean, vehicle, looks like an airplane for sure. And it has like short, stubby wings. Um, the eight engines are mounted, uh, toward the front of the, uh, thing. And you know, the front looks like a dinosaur or something. It looks like some kind of a prehistoric. It really does. It really does. It's, uh, just the, uh, the remnants of the, of the cold war. I've actually seen those in person on the black sea. Oh, really? Uh, I've never seen them. Fly- yeah. I've never seen them flying though, or, or in, in, in ground effect, but I've actually seen them in person. They're just absolutely stunning, stunning. What are the things on top the, of the fuselage? Okay, those things, Liz is asking what's on top of the fuselage. So, again, you'll have to look in the show notes if you're listening to the audio-only show. Uh, there are three twin-mounted um, things on the dorsal portion of the of the top of the airplane. Or the top, I keep calling it airplane. See, I'm just oh, as guilty as MSN is, uh, the vessel. <laughs> yeah, now, Those are missile launchers. So, yeah. uh, it, was, it was designed to launch six uh, nuclear missiles from the uh, the surface of the water or ground effect. And they're kind of pointed up, like slightly angled up. And then on the tail, yeah. uh, there's a, a, some bulbous-looking formations, and those are actually the, uh, the radar systems and antennas uh-huh. that uh, kind of control these uh, missiles once they've been launched. I like how the uh, how the pedo tube is in this uh, tripod type contraption off the nose there. It looks like a pedo tube anyway. Looks like a machine gun. Um, <laughs> yeah, it really does. Uh, it's, it's it's really interesting because um, there, I mean this obviously goes back to Cold War days, and I'm sure uh, our resident historian uh, Old Nixter uh, knows a lot more about these things than uh, than any of us. But uh, it's interesting when the CIA um, became aware of these things, they didn't know what the heck they were. They were just looking down on you know. Uh, I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was. It was it must have been satellite imagery or, or maybe YouTube pictures or something. I don't know. But they didn't know what it was because it wasn't wings weren't long enough to be an airplane, but it it had wings and it was on the water, so they didn't know what to make of it. 
but so yeah i mean I even look at it now and even knowing what it is it's still like oh, i'm not sure what to make of this thing yeah. um, lots of good articles um on the google um including wikipedia i was looking over that the other day because it's just fascinating to me i think the nick did a um a plain tale about the rbc sea monsters i think right, right. yeah the rbc right. monsters mm-hmm. um and uh, so they made one um which was uh md-160 loon class ecranoplan or ecranoplan and another one was being um constructed but they never finished it and i mm-hmm. believe one i think the one that was actually finished and uh, we have all the pictures of is going to be um now made into a museum and the uh, Dagestan region of Russia. I'm not sure if that's wow. the way you pronounce that or not. I'd love to go see that sometime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I'll I'll try to uh, remember to put the uh, uh, Wikipedia link uh, in the show notes as well, so you can read up about it. All right. Let's. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, a great beer town. One of these days, we're going to have another meetup there, and we'll, we need hopefully to. I'll get to meet Jeffrey. Um, this one here is from Idro Idro uh, on, on Facebook. He says, greetings to the crew from the Koahava Air Show in Finland. Ah. And he also uh, sent us um, a, a link to a picture? tweet. And yeah. Hang on, I'll go to it. Okay. Got it. Uh, Liz is trying to find uh, his the it's picture coming. that he sent um, of himself. It's toward the t- top of that stack, yep, I think. Yep, I've got it. I got okay. it. There um, he is. And there he is there at is. Uh, the uh, the air show wearing his uh, Acme, green Acme shirt. And nice. uh, so it was nice to uh, hear from you again, Idro. Uh, last time he sent us a picture of him drinking beer in a hammock. And, in his shirt. And wearing that shirt. Nice, and, that's easy uh, living. Beautiful. Yes, it is. He also sent us a tweet uh, from the Red Arrows, and uh, it involves uh, uh, some video taken from uh, Red Arrow number 10 as they're going across the top of the Red Arrows formation. I don't know what they call this. Echelon formation, I think, and uh, they're coming home from the air show. They're in uh, Kahava. I'm not sure if that's the way you pronounce that or not, but... Uh, Anyway, really nice footage that uh, the Red Arrows uh, put up on Twitter. Beautiful. Very nice. So good hearing from you, Idro Idro. Mike sent us this. This is Mike Dell up in Michigan. We were talking about a, an occurrence that uh, up in uh, up in Michigan. He says um, he sent us a link, and he says that uh, an Air Force pilot once flew a bomber under the. Mackinac Bridge, he said. Also, it's pronounced Mackinac. He said it's spelled funny. So the spelling is M A C K I N A C. So that's why I said Mackinac. Uh, yeah. But now I understand. When I was sitting next to Steph, I remember her kind of saying Mackinac. Yeah, it's and Mackinac. I, thinking, I remember, and I and I remember that name from uh, one of my favorite movies back in the day. It was uh, the Jackal with uh, Bruce Willis. Oh, and uh, okay. it, it takes place up there in Mackinac, yeah. Well, what's wrong with these Michiganders and their spelling? Because that should be an M-A-C-K-I-N-A-W, don't you think? Uh, oh, you'd, well. you'd think so, but uh, I don't know. Anyway, 
Uh, he said, for what it's or for your information, it wasn't me that flew under the bridge on June 28th. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah, he sounds a little, I don't know, maybe a little guilty, huh? a little defensive. <laughs> me thinks he protests too much or whatever the saying is. Okay, anyway, this article talks about uh, something that happened back in 1959, April 24th, 1959. I would have been about four months old when this happened. So it wasn't me flying the B-47 oh, wow. Stratojet. Um, but imagine an Air Force B-47 Stratojet bump, uh, bomber zipping underneath the structure. Anyway, there was an article uh, from Popular Mechanics um, that talks about this. Uh, the guy's name was uh, Lieutenant Lapo. I believe he was lieutenant at the time. And... Yeah. And, and and I think that's all he was, right, Lieutenant? That's uh that's how we left the force. No, actually, yeah. interestingly, really, um, yeah. This la the second article, which is the um, which is the uh, popular mechanics article. He says, oh, there we go. He was grounded forever, so that was his last time flying an airplane. That having been said, he did retire after two more promotions to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. So wait a minute, that would have been so he would have been major. So he must have been a captain when he did this. So he actually got promoted to lieutenant colonel uh, before oh, wow. he retired. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so, so yeah, it says right there, Cap Captain John S. Lapo to fly a nuclear bomber under the bridge in the Dare Maneuver. Yeah, so was, he was a captain, yep. So I'm thinking, okay, wow. so the, uh, what was the clearance there? Like 150 feet, 150 feet between <laughs> the uh, water and the bottom of the bridge span. And I think that the, uh, the height of the B-47 was like 20 eight feet or something like that so you know there was there was some margin there not there a, lot. a little bit of margin yeah but you know it, and it's funny how this this story is kind of tied out uh, ties to the other one where you know, you're flying in ground effect uh, you enter ground effect at one half the wingspan and you know you're certainly within one half of the wingspan there so he wasn't ground effect again and going under that bridge there it's a very very uh gutsy maneuver i don't know why you'd ever uh do something like that but uh hey well he said he decided to make his move while peering down at the straits as a stiff breeze whipped up the white caps on a clear afternoon. He always wanted to fly under a big bridge and recalled telling the crew, I'm taking her under. <laughs> when, when I was flying missions to the Far East, I was a co-pilot and I wanted to fly under the Golden Gate at night, but I couldn't induce the pilot to do it, he told the paper, uh, which is the Freep. A free press, I guess. Dot com. Detroit Free Press. Detroit Free Press. Thank you, Liz. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Lapo leveled out and roared over the water, seventy-five to one hundred feet above the ivory spray of the breakers. Uh, the mighty Mackinac raced up toward the windshield of Lapo's B forty-seven. On that day in nineteen fifty-nine, Lapo said that there were two vehicles on the bridge, a car and a truck, both traveling north. Lapo insisted everyone else on board the big bomber was excited about his idea to fly under the bridge. Except the navigator. Figures. Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, <laughs> <Party> figures. <laughs> well, you know, what's funny about that is Mike Dell was a navigator in the Air Force. He's the one that sent us this article. <laughs> um, he said, yeah, the navigator warned against it, he recalled. Of course, I didn't know at the time that his father was the general, and he was going to rat on me when we got back. <laughs> oh. Oops. Uh, he uh, Lapo died in 2003, uh, 83 years old, at his home in Eagle River. And then, again, there's more information about this um, 
uh, airplane and the event and the popular mechanics article. So they're both going to be in the show notes for you if you want to check it out. Very nice. And Neil's asking if I'm going to do it on the seven six. Uh, no, Neil, I'll be I'll be staying I'll be staying away from that maneuver in bridges. I'll fly over bridges with a lot of clearance. <laughs> uh, never under bridges. Okay. Yeah. Good point. Um, okay. Oh wait, now Laura, she's up in Michigan. She says Mackinac Bridge, but the town is spelled Mackinac City. So, but I, I guess they're both pronounced Mackinac. Because Mac is in awe, Lane says. No, I don't think that's why, Lane. Um, and the island is Mackinac Island. Although we do have a Mackinac. The bridge. I think the bridge and the island are Mackinac. I okay. think the straits are Mackinac. So, okay, so we're, Laura, you have to give me an answer. I know it's going to take about 25 to 30 seconds to give it to me. But what is the correct way to pronounce the bridge name? Here it comes. Is it, is it Ac or Ah? Ac or Ah? So Laura is going We're to. Waiting. She's in our live audience. This is just yeah. so exciting, isn't it? Especially I love for those this of you. We, this, this is where we need the Jeopardy music. Oh right yeah, now. I need to. Oh, I know. I can find some um, uh, timpani. I think. Um, hang on. There we go. There we go. The pressure's what on. What is it going to be? Mackinac or Mackinac? No, no ack. Well, no ah. Uh, ah, uh, no ack. Uh, okay. Ah. Uh, oh. All pronounced Mackinac. There we go. Yay, Apparently, it's just a difference in the spelling, not the pronunciation. Okay, so it is Mackinac. All right. Yep. Well, you know, I no am ass. so relieved now to hear all that. And we can wind up now because yep, we've got about three minutes left. Yep, you're going to be able to sleep left. like a baby. Okay. <laughs> well, our producer director is telling us, I've had enough of you all. It's time to wrap it up. <laughs> And, uh, and she's pretty adamant about this. So we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. And uh, so thank you for showing up on, late on a or early, uh, depending on where you are in the world. Uh, for part two of episode 441, we do appreciate it. We appreciate you listening to the show, uh, downloading the podcast. By the way, if you happen to be looking at the YouTube video, it doesn't hurt to subscribe to the uh, YouTube channel. And also, you can ring the bell. Uh, which is not this one that I have here, but one that you can find on the YouTube channel. And that what that will do will uh, give you notifications when we're uh, going live on the YouTube channel. And uh, the other way to be notified when we're doing the show is, of course, to uh, keep track of us on the social media outlets or the social meds, as I like to call them. And I'm going to see if Rick knows what to say about that. Oh, boy. Do I know what to say about that? Well, uh, we are on Twitter at uh, APG Crew. Uh-huh. We are on the uh, Instagrams. Is it APG Crew as well? Yep. That is correct. It is. Yep. Look at that. And Liz is helping you out by putting those up on the uh, <laughs> on the screen. Here's Facebook. Here's and then Facebook, the Facebooks is the Airline Pilot Guy. Yeah. And I and I, I don't know what uh, and I, I think that's 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 all the social means we have. Right? I, I think, think so. we do have one more. Okay, we do. Uh, do, do but we before have, we get we to that, let one? me let me tell you a little bit about our website, which is awesome. Uh, it's ah. called uh, airlinepilotguide.com, uh, where you'll find information about the crew, the community, and the which is the best part of all this. I mean, I'm not lying. 
Um, I've got a Plain Tales page. We have the APG library managed by Tiffany, our APG librarian. We have merchandise. We have information about the coffee fund. And uh, we have a calendar and so much more. Please check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And if you want to send us feedback, it's feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And as Rick was mentioning, we do have another Sochmead, kind of a quasi Sochmead that uh, we like to talk about. Actually, we, we don't like to talk about it. I have somebody that is waiting in my bathroom here to. Uh, help us out with that so um let me see if i can get the right uh page here here we go i need to turn on the uh hidden microphone uh in the shower i know yeah it's kind of creepy hello hello slack time slack okay but i'm dripping wet that's okay we're used to it come on (laughs) over here and uh tell us about slack APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right, thank you. Now, try not to get everything wet. Try not to get everything wet on the way... Get out the water. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm looking at the uh, at the chat room here, and apparently this is uh, prime time for our uh, Aussie and uh, New Zealand uh, APG community members. So, awesome! Uh, we did it. That? We did it just for them. We just need exactly. Nick to stay up just all night, exactly. and he'll be all good. For them. Yeah, like Nick is going to stay up all night to. Liz is saying we just get need to get Nick to stay up all night, and we can do this at this time every week. <laughs> yeah, ain't happening. It's like what three o'clock in the morning there. Something uh, ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, just after three. Okay, well, there you go. So, so many ways to uh, keep track of us on social meds and um, the website and send us feedback and all that jazz. And uh, we also want to thank, um, a big thank you to our producer director, Liz, who is up in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Thank you, Liz, for You're keeping welcome. us straight. And Yes, ma'am. With that, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. We'll see you next time, all. Take care. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats airline pilot guy I fly America oh airline pilot guy he can't 
no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I got 